Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 909 with John Sherman. In the beginning, you were doing everything, right? I was the guy ringing in orders in the POS, right? I was working on the cooking line, placing the orders, and then you have to build out these systems to bring on people and have them try to follow the same kind of approach and mindset that you had when you were doing those things. Are you ready for it? Factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Pop Menu. Trying to meet the demands of in-person hospitality can be demanding, which is why I recommend Pop Menu Answering. Pop Menu Answering turns every restaurant phone call into an opportunity. It uses artificial intelligence to answer the simple questions that are tying up your phone lines like, can I make a reservation or where are you located? And over 50% of restaurant guests are happy to have their questions answered by an automated system. Prevent lost customers and impress your guests with pop menu answering. And for a limited time, my listeners can get $100 off your first month, plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. Go now to get your $100 off for your first month and to learn more about Pop Menu's full collection of tools at popmenu.com backslash unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by MyRestaurantCFO.com. MyRestaurantCFO partners with restaurants to simplify financial management by offering full-service bookkeeping, payroll, and CFO services. Beyond MyRestaurantCFO's understanding of all the things that ill and plague a restaurant, MyRestaurantCFO realizes that restaurants are like snowflakes. No two are the same, so they avoid the cookie-cutter approach. My Restaurant CFO's goal is to be your partner in success by learning all there is to know about your business and putting together a custom solution that gives you only what you need and to be a guiding hand that helps you achieve your goals. Take action and go to MyRestaurantCFO.com slash unstoppable and... When you use that link, you will get a one-hour consulting session with the founder and partner, Miguel Miranda, also a past guest on the show. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And I have to say, I haven't come across a restaurateur using Seven Shifts that hasn't been completely satisfied. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communications, tasks, tips, and more all in one place. And because you are restaurant unstoppable, listeners, you get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven, S-H-I-F-T-S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, CEO and co-founder at Sticky's Fingers Joint, John Sherman. My man, John, are you feeling unstoppable today? 
What's up, Eric? Great to be here. I'm feeling unstoppable today. Yeah, man. I, I can, really am. I cannot wait to get into your story, dude. Um, I really am a fan just from the outside looking in at what little I know uh, about what I like to see in business. It seems like you're doing a lot of that. I can't wait to pull back the layers. But let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. And don't be afraid to get right up on top of that mic. Yeah, you know, I mean, the thing that's making me feel unstoppable right now is my team. Yeah. Because, you know, I can't do anything without my team. And, you know, we're, uh, I feel like we're really on the precipice of really doing a lot of great things. I mean, on the precipice, dude, I think you've done a lot of great things. I mean, how many total stores are you up to now? We had 13 restaurants. 13 restaurants yep. all up in... Uh, uh, we're in New York and New Jersey and uh, about to open one up, actually... In about in the next month in Yonkers, you can't shake just, a, can't shake a stick at that man. No, and you're only you're only just getting started, so I can't just getting started. Yep, yeah, dude. So where does it make sense to start sharing your story? Like, when did you know that the food and beverage industry was for you? Because this isn't you didn't take a traditional path into this, did you? I did not take a traditional path, yeah. and it wasn't it wasn't something I grew up like. Oh, I got you know wanted to get into the food or restaurant industry, and you know it was it kind of you know. It, fortuitous uh you know series of events that that brought me here um, so you were working in finance correct me if i'm wrong i was working in finance um i was uh i started my career working at a bank and then i was working at a hedge fund uh called bridgewater associates for a couple of years and you Did know that from 08 to or you know you were at jp morgan i was at jp morgan right out of college and you know, i started in finance and at a bank right at the you know middle the start of the financial crisis yeah. uh, which was interesting <laughs> uh, you know plenty crash of, course in banking I'm sure. yeah plenty of in, plenty of fun stories from that so um, were you working in restaurants before like when you were in high school no really no you know i like worked uh, i mean i worked like the only thing i really did was i worked uh, in the kitchen at a summer camp one one summer okay and that was zero culinary training that was basically what not to do in a kitchen so what were you during this time between 08 and 09 at JP Morgan and 09 to 2012 and from straight from there by 2012 you you had stickies going right so what do you think was going on during this time that set you up for success what what do you think made made you prepared or what was your unfair advantage because of your your past your history you know i think i i was trying to figure out my path i knew you know, while I liked what I was doing and I found it to be interesting, I also had this kind of entrepreneurial itch that I feel like I've always had and I never really knew how to scratch it. And, you know, I think when the opportunity presented itself to, to jump into this, you know, it kind of checked that box alongside food, which is something that I've also always been passionate about. So and, when did you discover your passion for food? Uh, I mean, you know, my whole life, right? Like yeah. it's, it's one of those things that like fucking everybody's passionate about everybody food, needs right? It. Every, like you just pull a random person <laughs> off the street and like, yeah. they have opinions on what they like, what they don't like. There's very few people in the world that are like, Oh, it's time to eat. Oh, okay. I, you know, I mean, I feel like it's just whether you're going on vacation or you're going <laughs> to visit a new place or even just like in your regular routine, like thinking about and deciding what to eat is like the most exciting yeah. thing that we do on like a day in and day out basis. For right? sure. Like I plan trips around like what I'm going to be eating. So describe what your work was like, what kind of work you were doing when you, when you graduated from the university of Michigan, right? What, what did you go to school for? So I actually studied engineering in school. I studied industrial engineering, which kind of trains you to like, it's like very process design oriented. Like I was trained to make, manufacturing plants more efficient dude engineers crush it in the restaurant industry and so you know what was i obviously didn't do that um, yeah but you are in a sense you did because engineering and it helps of, in so many different ways oh i feel God. like even yeah. when i got into finance it was really helpful because i was trained 
to use a lot of different software programs. I learned some basic computer programming. You know, I did a lot of work in Excel in college, and then you go be a banker yeah. and you know work in finance, and you're just like in Excel all day. So exactly. you know, I got that training in college, which was super helpful and kind of gave me a leg up. Um, you know, I'd say the thing that I really learned, particularly at Bridgewater, uh, they have a big focus on like the founder of that company is a very extremely successful guy and he's kind of been working on this transition plan and like how can the company continue to be successful without me mm-hmm. and he's like his approach was like I'm going to build all of my management principles out like here's how I make decisions and so he was like took this very structured approach to defining all of his principles that that he used and kind of really this like structured decision making process for how he made the management decisions that he did and basically hey if I can like codify this and give it to all my successors they can kind of make the same decisions yes, that i made dude, i love that because I, I literally call that recreating yourself in others or recreating yourself in systems and the way you do that is through like by creating those systems you recreate yourself in others by recreating yourself in systems and culture right but you were about to say something else i think i might cut you a little short no so i mean look i think that was just super valuable for me yeah. that learn getting exposed to that and seeing like somebody who really like put a ton of their effort into like just defining thought process and just defining like decision making processes because like at the end of the day like everything whether you're running a business or in your life you basically can boil it down to like can you make good decisions at a good clip yeah. right like yeah. if you're if you can you know you're never you're not going to get every decision right but if you can generally make good decisions then like you're generally going to have good outcomes yeah but what your boss was doing doing over at Bridgewater is essentially I feel like what every restaurant tour or any business owner for that matter should be doing like how can I replace myself my my job from day one is to try to remove myself from all equations of the business of course because yeah. when you're scaling a business right the thing that you can't scale is yourself, right? You're only one person. You only have X number of hours in a day yeah. and you can only touch so many things. And that's like kind of the constant struggle, right? Of being an entrepreneur and building a business to where, you know, you're, you're in the beginning, you were doing everything, right? Yeah. I was the guy ringing in orders in the POS, right? I was working on the cooking line. You know, I was placing the orders and then you have to build out these systems to get other people, you know, to bring on people and have them try to follow, you know, the, the same kind of approach and mindset that you had when you were doing those things. Yeah. And of course you want to get people in who can actually help you do it better and evolve yeah. and like, Hey, tell me, you know, okay, you'll do these things that way I was doing it, but maybe you have a better way to do this. Cause what the fuck do I know? Exactly. You know? Yeah. So like I, I think of Mikey Saboro from Mikey's late night slice out of, um, uh, Dano, not Dano, Ohio, Columbus, Ohio, uh, repeat guests on the show. Love that dude. But he, the words he uses is cr- creating layers between yourself and the work. And I think a lot of times, uh, we create that first line, like that, like the, whatever layer of systems we need to remove ourselves from like the, the line work. Right. And then we're, we think we're done, but it's never ending layers. La- that like, resonates with me so much and, yeah. it's, and it's never done. And, it, and it's also, you know, and it's a very much dynamic kind of thing, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, to the point about layers, right? It's like, okay, originally I was doing all these things in the restaurant and then, okay, now I have a manager and so I'm managing them, but they're doing all the things. And yeah. now, you know, we have general managers, we have district managers, you know, have a VP of operations, right? There's now multiple layers. Yeah, so. but then who manages them, yeah. right? And then it just keeps going and going. And of going course, going it keeps going. going. And, you know, as you get further away from the actual thing that's happening, you know, you like it, there is a little bit of uneasiness around oh, it, I'm especially sure. when you see things that don't go right. Yeah. You know, and it's like my, my ability to now influence that has to go through, you know, several layers of management before, you know, I can't just go and do, you know, it's like if I want somebody to, you know, 
bot plate the chicken in a different way, I can't just go and do that, right? Yeah. I have to like make sure that it's telegraphed and communicated through everyone. I'm going to put down a note, layers of communication. I want to come back to this because I feel like there's some good lessons there, but let's stay chronological for now. And back when you were at Bridgewater, what were you specializing in? Did you, did you like, what was, what was the work you were doing? Like what did the day in the life of John look like back in 2011? So I had, uh, I'd started in one role there. I was doing a collateral management. I'm not going to bore all of your guests, but you know, basically, what does that mean? What is collateral management? Basically this was like really top of mind post financial crisis where all these, you know, we traded with like 25 different banks Yeah, and there's this notion that like there's when you're trading derivatives, you have exposure. Like, yeah. you know, we could make a trade to settle in a month, but I could be winning that trade and you could, you know, theoretically owe me millions and millions of dollars and like just hope that like we're good for it when, yeah. the, when the trade settles. So what they do to kind of mitigate that is they send money to each other like every day, right? Yeah. These banks are sending money via margin calls every single day. It's like, so I'd literally wake up, go to my office, I'd run a tool that showed me, you know, what my margin calls were that day. And I'd either be Blasting out emails to banks saying, give me a bunch of money, or I'd be receiving emails from banks sending, you know, asking me to give them money. So you're basically keeping your finger on the pulse of where you stood with the, the collateral and what... And exactly. You're yeah. a, a middleman between moving money back and forth. between. Correct. Banks. Yes. Did that serve you well? Do you think as far as things that you learned from doing that and managing... I mean, this is definitely like a, a pennies and, and nickels type of I mean, of it's business. totally different than what I'm doing. I mean, I, you know, it's, Bridgewater is the largest hedge fund in the world, so we have... Huge portfolios and, you know... Do you huge, think they might send me some money? Huge. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that would be nice, right? Anything? Huge positions. You know, it's like you almost get like mindless, like, you know... <laughs> Trying to buy a van. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, you're moving around huge amounts of money every day and it's like you get numb to it for right, sure. I'm sure. Um, but, you know, there's definitely a lot of things I learned. And, you know, that was my first kind of exposure to that that comp- that organization where this, this management approach was so top of mind. And so, you know, one of the things... That I actually got a ton of value on. I actually got involved in the recruiting okay. in, in the in our in our uh, department, and they did some real wacky recruiting stuff, which I kind of liked. And I ended up like administering some of these. Where when they bring people in, the first the first step is they call it a discussion group, and they like they'll put like four people in a room and somebody like me, monitor, you know, uh, you know, administering this, and you just ask people like some like very kind of esoteric type of question. And just see how they respond, see how they think. Like something that doesn't have a right or wrong answer. Yeah. You know, like, like is Walmart good for America? Right. And just like debate. And so they like these very open ended debates. And like really the goal was just to see how people think. Were they making logical arguments? You know, there wasn't a right or wrong answer. Hard situations. Exactly. Like, you know, how quickly could they process information? Could they make logical arguments? Could they, you know, clearly communicate their thoughts and ideas and, you know, we like it was pretty cool, right? It's it pretty, cool. you know. I mean, that, I've heard that come up a few times in the show. Just like what kind of questions you ask for an interview, and like it, not the canned questions because people they rehearse those. They they they're what like like tell me about the, the history of our company. Like you have an answer for that. Tell me about why you want to work here and anywhere else. You have an answer for that. But tell me, is Walmart good or bad for America? Like, like you're putting somebody on the you're spot. You're putting somebody on the spot, and people would be super uncomfortable. And, yeah. And what was really interesting was that, you know, when it was done, we'd ask each person to rate themselves, to, to basically give us two ratings, right? One to five, how did you think you did? And then also one to five, how comfortable were you? What's a good answer in that situation? Well, so, you know, the thing that we were looking for is like, was somebody clearly uncomfortable? And then 
Would somebody like do a bad job or clearly uncomfortable and then said, "Oh yeah, I crushed it and I was super and I was comfortable." So right? sense of reality. I sent like self-awareness. A big thing yeah. a big thing is about self-awareness. So that's the peak of emotional intelligence is self-awareness. And so that's what we were really looking for. It's like if you were uncomfortable, like let's say you kind of didn't talk much, maybe you said a few things that made sense, but you were dominated by other people. If you told us that, "Hey, I think maybe I did a 4, but I was a 2 on how comfortable I was." We might put past you through because, hey, at least they're acknowledging maybe this was just not the right. You weren't ready for this. Yeah. Or it wasn't the right form. What about people who do a good job but also are like, I killed that. That's a five. Do you want room for like his modesty being very Definitely. There? I mean, look, I think a big part of what their their culture and I think of any good culture, right? It's like like you have to not be ego driven, right? Yeah. Like if people are making decisions based off of their ego, that's just not going to go well. Yeah. And I think that's that's toxic. And basically every culture I can imagine, I can't imagine there's a business who who you know, is going to thrive with that type of environment. So, so, so towards the end of your time at Bridgewater, is this the kind of work where you were doing where you were running things through a tool and then being the middleman and communicating? So, where? you know, I knew I didn't want to do that forever. And that's kind of, that was the time when I started to engage in this conversation with a friend of mine around opening up a fried chicken restaurant. Um, so, you know, I was in this, I mean, I was young, right? I was a couple of years out of college, um, doing something that was interesting and learning a lot, but I knew, knowing that this thing isn't what I want to do forever. And so, I was really like throwing a bunch of shit against the wall to see to see what stuck. And I was interviewing for other jobs, other finance jobs. I was also taking some courses and interviewing internally. And and then at the same time, at night, would come home and you know talk about fried chicken restaurants. Okay, so now I think uh, is a great time to take our first break to thank our sponsors, and we're just going to get right into how Stickies was formed. We actually got a little bit of a late start today because of the the, the Manhattan traffic that's on me. So I want to just get right into this. We'll be right back. Restaurants have been hit hard over the past few years, which means restaurant owners and staff have been working harder than ever. Trying to meet the demands of in-person hospitality can be demanding, which is why I recommend Pop Menu Answering. Pop Menu Answering turns every restaurant phone call into an opportunity. It uses artificial intelligence to answer the simple questions that are tying up your phone lines like, can I make a reservation or where are you located? And over 50% of restaurant guests are happy to have their questions answered by an automated system. Within the pop menu platform, you can customize answers for your restaurant and choose the voice your guests hear and even send follow-up links via text message. Pop Menu Answering picks up your phone 24-7, 365 days a year, allowing you and your team to focus on what matters most. Prevent lost customers and impress your guests with Pop Menu Answering. And for a limited time, my listeners can get $100 off your first month, plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash unstoppable Go now to get your $100 off for your first month and to learn more about Pop Menu's full collection of tools at popmenu.com backslash unstoppable. We're back and you said you would, you're going to work and you're maybe thinking about different opportunities with under the Bridgewater umbrella. Uh, you're interviewing for other jobs elsewhere, but you would still just be dreaming about a chicken finger restaurant. What was this a fascination with chicken fingers? Like why chicken fingers? Like why was that singing to you? You know, look, I've always been a, I mean, I've always loved chicken fingers where I grew up eating them. I mean, I grew up like loving fried chicken. You know, my mom's a big fried chicken fan as well. Like we always just love fried chicken. And like, 
I feel like we had this idea. I had this idea with a friend of mine to make a restaurant that just specialized in chicken fingers. And as we thought about it, living in, I was living in the Lower East Side. You know, we'd started to see some other restaurants like with super focused menus that really were like taking off and resonating. What were the examples? Like, what were the other restaurants? So I lived right around, right around the corner from the original meatball shop. Ah, past guests on the show. And so, you know, like they were, they opened up a couple years before we did. And they like, literally I was living right by them. And they were, you know, they were crushing that first restaurant. They were crushing it. And they had this great, it's a great vibe. And really like they were just doing this one thing and they were doing it well. And, you know, people like meatballs. I like meatballs, right? It's a thing. And I'm just sitting there and being like, well, we've talked about this fried chicken restaurant. It's like, man everybody loves chicken fingers. Like, yeah. yeah, people love meatballs. People really love chicken fingers. And just felt like there wasn't anyone, at least in New York City, who was yeah. kind of owning that. You weren't the first person to go deep in on chicken fingers. I mean, we got to look at somebody like, uh, I can't believe, Chick-fil-A, right? Like, this isn't... This yeah, is a but Chick-fil-A is really into, like, the fried chicken sandwich. You know, that's the kind of thing that they own. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there were other people. Like, there was, like, Canes. Raising Canes, right? Exactly. They're the kind of, you know, they were big on chicken fingers yeah. probably since the 90s. You know, I grew up. I was. I, I never lived. I'd never seen one before. Honestly, before I started sitting, never even heard of raising yeah, canes. I only. I only found out about it once. You know, once we started going deep into chicken fingers, then you know. That's a both those brands them. are big in the south. You know? Yeah, and, and I can vouch in the northeast. Nobody had owned the the chicken finger game yet. Exactly, and it's a proven concept because you know it's taking off in other markets, right? And it's also you you hit the the nail on the head. It's during a time where people started to focus on doing one thing really well, and that works the best in overpopulated markets because you can own that that one thing. So when people think of that one thing, they go to the the person who does that one thing. Especially in New York City, where you have so many different places specializing in so many different things, you know, to try to compete against. A lot of different people on a lot of different things. You know, I think you're just you're setting yourself up for having a big challenge. Whereas, like, we're just going to really dial in on like we're going to make the best chicken finger and we're going to make the best chicken finger experience. So at this point, you're still a pretty young dude. In 2011 is when you guys started, right? Or 2012 is when you guys 2011 was when we started working on it, and yeah. 2012 was when we got the first oh, restaurant. You're 24 open. years old, 25 uh, years yeah, old. Yeah, it was 25 when I started working on it, and 26 when yeah. we got the first store open. So. Did you have, did you know then what you know now as far as why the benefits of doing one thing really well? Was it that strategic or do you think you just kind of got lucky and then realized that, oh, wow, there's so much benefit to putting this energy behind one thing? You know, look, I think I, I, deep in my gut, I knew that that was the approach. I think early on we got a little sidetracked and waylaid and, you know, there's kind of, you know, in any business, right, there's an evolution of your kind of, how can you improve the business and you try to do some things and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. And so, you know, I think that's always been the kind of North star of like, this is the core experience, chicken fingers and dipping sauces. And let, let's make sure that we are setting up a business to deliver that the best as we can, as we possibly can. So I put a note down cause I want to come back to this to try to do different things and you know, you get distracted. Um, but eventually you came back to your core focus and that's such a, hot word for me right now, core focus. Cause it's something that I'm going through personally too, of like getting distracted by shiny objects, you know, but let's go back to like when you, when you, when did, do you know the moment where you're like, this is what I'm going to do. Screw all, like this, this going back to school, screw job interviewing. Like I'm opening a fried chicken finger restaurant. You know, it's, it's a, a little murky because <laughs> we are going uh, back over 10 years. Ago. Yeah. No, I remember. No, I, I, <laughs> But, you know, what happened was, you know, as I was as I was starting to work on this uh, chicken finger concept, um, you know, I was also, again, trying to 
explore other career opportunities. And I ended up getting a great opportunity within Bridgewater. And so I stopped doing the collateral management and I got an opportunity to work in the research department, okay. which is kind of like the most interesting, in my opinion, the most interesting part of their business where they're doing macroeconomic research to build their kind of trade logic for how they you know, make trades and build portfolios. Okay. So what did, how did that serve you? So, you know, I learned a ton just about, I mean, I kind of came into that really not knowing much about economics or anything like that. Um, you know, I knew some like the basics of investing and all that, but, um, I just learned a ton about macroeconomics. I was put through crash courses. It's now just something outside of business is something that I'm super interested in. And I still kind of follow. How is that serving you though? Like, give me an example of your knowledge, your, your willingness and ability to follow economics, macroeconomics serving you in your, your restaurant today. Well, so, you know, what serves me from that experience in the most kind of one-to-one way is the way that we did our analysis was we were ingesting enormous amounts of data and, you know, build, working with tools to try to like parse that out and analyze the data and look at trends. So when you say tools, you're talking like data mining software, basically? Yeah. So, you know, they, they, had, they put a ton of resource into their building their own database and then building all these like tools that they, that again, Search how engines. to, yeah, how to extract that data and how to visualize that data. Yeah. And I was, you know, we were kind of transitioning to, to a new technology. So I was pretty involved in seeing how that all worked and, and I found it to be very interesting. And frankly, it's given me a pretty strong understanding now just like thinking about how we as a restaurant, right? We're sitting on all this data also. It's a lot different than the economic data yeah. we're working on, but you know, conceptually the same thing. Of, yeah. We have a shitload of data that lives in a bunch of different places and, and you know, we want to try to bring it to something where we can actually use it as restaurant operators. And that's the most challenging thing, right? It's like you have all this information out there, but how can you actually turn that into something that you know, a restaurant manager can digest and actually can, act, can take action off of? So do you think, is, is it that data approach that high touch data approach that you think is serving you to say that being able to, or I guess a, a, a more of a willingness to lean into data and to embrace data because you know, there's power in there. It, it definitely is serving me in, in just how we've kind of built our organization up to this point and, and even what we're continuing to do, because this is, you know, all of these technologies are just a very much ongoing, ongoing thing. And the thing, you know, the, the new tool today is going to be old news in another year or two. Exponential. And, you know, I mean, yeah. Moore's law is a thing. If you guys aren't familiar with Moore's law, it's basically this idea that technology is, is expanding, is getting better at an exponential rate. And if you don't know what exponential means, it's X factor. It's, it's multiplies. So we think about how far we've come in the past 20 years, right? In the next 10 years, we're going to go, like 10 twice as far you know and it's 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 exciting and it's kind of scary but at the same time i think it's hopeful because of all these data these touch points that we're getting and if if people choose to be open with their data and to share their data and if you have data and i have data and i think somebody's probably out there and i'll listen to me going it's it's data's it's plural is it is it it's not it's data data yeah i think data is a plural i'm I'm in trouble or something (laughs) um but like if we choose to share that information and we and we come together and we say this is what i'm doing what are you doing and this is the new like we have access like the the data won't lie it will tell us where we're headed what we're doing and if we share that information we can transform this industry i'm I'm, what's going through your mind as i say that yeah i mean look i think i totally agree with that you know i think there is a limiting factor of you know you can collect as many data you collect bazillion data points but if you don't actually have the the tools or the approach to turn that data into 
real actions and decisions in your business, then you know, you're either just not getting any benefit from it or even worse, potentially distracting yourself, spending a lot of time looking at data that you don't know what to do with. Got it. So I put another note to come back to data to talk about the data you're looking at today as you've scaled your business. But what happened? So you got this new great opportunity, like you got your promotion, what you're looking for, but the chicken fingers are still calling to you. Chicken fingers are still calling. You know, it's kind of one of those things like once that thing left, once that train left the station, yeah. there was kind of no stopping it. So what, at what point did, after taking on this new role, were you like, no, nah, I still want to do chicken fingers? Well, so, you know, we had already started working on it. So even when I got the new role, we had already, again, started ideating on the business and started even testing recipes. Like we bought the little like home tabletop fryer and mm-hmm. we we're testing, you know, just starting to test chicken finger recipes and sauce recipes. You know, I'm... I was very much took like the scientific approach of like, let's just tinker with different ratios and different yeah. temperatures and different times to try to get to, you know, the best, the best chicken product. What was the best chicken product in your mind? What were you aiming for then? You know, it's hard. It's, it's a really, it's a delicate balance of what yeah. makes the best chicken finger. Cause you want crunch, but you don't want it to be Definitely want crunch. dried out. Right. Yeah. You, it's like, how can you achieve this balance of crunchy on the outside, but soft and moist and juicy on the inside mm. all the while all the while trying to get as much flavor in there as possible but not too much flavor because if it's overwhelmingly saltier season then it, you know it's going to be overkill when you dip it in a, a sauce which is also a big part of kind of our chicken finger experience here yeah so do you did you have you always and to use to this day do from scratch all of your chicken fingers everything is from scratch yeah and that's yeah. that's not easy to do to scale too it's not easy to scale um you know, one of the, as an aside, I feel like when I started the restaurant a couple of years in, and as we had a few locations, you know, got to know a lot of the other kind of like multi-unit restaurateurs in, in the city who kind of were built, you know, fast casual restaurants and like at a similar size and felt like everyone was kind of on this race to get to a commissary. So I'm curious, did you get a lot of pressure from outside influence saying, why are you doing this in house? Like your labor expenses through the roof. If you, hi- if you just you know, outsource your chicken fingers. You could just cut a bag. You'd save, you know, three hours of prep every day, $45 per person, three people like that adds up. Did you hear that? Yeah. But I mean, at our, at our size and scale, then the next step would be like a commissary that we can run to get somebody to go produce it in a factory for us to, we would call co-packing. Yeah. You have to be at really, you, there's a certain volume threshold where they're going to do that for you, right? You're not going to get a, a co-packer to go and make your chicken recipe or make your sauce recipe for you. If you have like one or two restaurants, you know, you gotta be using, you know, you gotta be going through a lot of volume to make it worth their while exactly. to actually like make all these things in their plant, put them on a truck, ship them, you know, ship them to your warehouse. So, you know, the, the real buzzword at the time was commissary because it kind of like, I feel like it was almost like a badge of honor. Like I've opened up enough restaurants that I can have a commissary. Yeah. Right. And it's like, Oh, I've made it. Yeah. And you know, I really resisted that or in that temptation uh, because it kind of never made sense to me, right? You resisted the urge to go to, to go to a commissary model yeah. um, for a couple reasons, but the main one was, you know, you're basically you're so now I got to go rent another place. I'm I'm taking on more cost. Um, I got to go get a truck, a refrigerated truck to go move all the stuff around, and so you know, not only is that added cost, but it's added logistics because. I got to hire a driver. What happens if that driver doesn't show up? Now, you know, my restaurant, my restaurant doesn't have food that day. If my truck breaks down, my restaurant doesn't have food today. You know, we buy from a a food distributor and they have a whole fleet of trucks. If they have, you know, their, their driver calls out or they, their truck breaks down, you know, they got, you know, dozens of backups. Uh, And that's their business, right? They're in the logistics business. I'm in the chicken business and the dipping sauce business. So, 
So what point did you get to before you get to that point where you're hiring and you're having somebody use your recipe offsite? You know, to be like, we're working on that now. That's one of the things we've been, we've okay. been working on over the last year. And you know, there are some guys out there who will do that for a, a restaurant of our scale. Um, to be honest, we've gotten samples from a bunch of different guys. We got, I mean, our focus is kind of on sauces because we make 18 homemade dipping sauces also again from scratch in every restaurant. And, you know, would be, would certainly make our lives easier to have somebody if they could if they have somebody be able to do that and distribute them to us, do that for us. But no one has, you know, I've gotten samples from three or four different guys, and you know, I just the the quality and the taste is not there yet. Hmm. So maybe it's just about finding the right guy, and I, you know, again, that still could be the direction that we go in. But but you're giving them the recipe, you're giving them the process. Is it just because doing it to scale, you can't quite do it the same way? And I think that's a big part of it. The, you know, they're using different, we're giving them the recipe, but there's obviously different ingredients. So, you know, it's possible, it's very possible. They're just not using the exact same ingredients or they're using lower quality ingredients or something to like the process of how they're making it at, you know, in their plant that just doesn't yield the same result. Okay. Um, I'm tempted. I don't know. I I, honestly, I got it. Like I'm, you know, I don't know enough because I would, I would have to go and see their plant to see exactly how they're so doing it. Is this something that you've tried in the past and you said to yourself, we're not ready. We need to go wait and maybe get to like a few more stores to get to that point where we can get a more volume to get a, be- a better price point. Is that, I mean, that def- that's how it always works. Yeah. Um, but you know, I do think that we're, 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 I'm actively looking for the right partner, at least starting small, right? Not going to, I mean, the chicken is always going to be fresh in every restaurant. I'm, we're never going to have somebody co-pack that, yeah. but, um, the you know, for, you know, the sauces, everything, you know, like our breading, like the breading mix that we use, we use like a, you know, a seasoned breading mix on the chicken, you know, the marinade that we use. Those are things that we could potentially, you know, get co-pack, you know, have a co-packer make those for us. Yeah. Um, let's go back to the origin of like, you're like, okay, the chicken fingers are still calling to me. When, do you remember the point of when you said, you know, I'm all in on the chicken fingers, like this, uh, what was it Bridgewater? Yeah. Bridgewater can take a back seat. Like this is now becoming my priority. And how did you make it happen? Well, so, you know, this was a challenge, right? Because I, so to get the first rest, I was committed on getting this thing open. Um, I got this promotion. My plan at the time was I'm going to keep my job and I'll just work in nights and weekends and, you know, do everything I can to support the business. Um, but at the same time, like keep this job because I like it. And also, you know, new restaurants are risky. Yeah. Right? Who the hell knows what's going to happen? So, you know, give myself at least a little bit of a... a but I think that's honestly smart because I think a lot of people quit their full-time job too soon. Um, and there's a lot of things you can do while still being full-time employed. Like all like the branding, like the, the business plan, pro forma. Like you can, you can get as much of the work done as possible. That's true. And I yeah. have friends who work in the corporate world who have kind of entrepreneurial itches who want to yeah. do this stuff. You know, maybe not a restaurant, but, you know, want to start their own business. And... You know, you can plan for it, right? You can stay nights and weekends and, and build out your business model and do the pro forma. And like, you know, again, those are like 100%. But actually operating a business is really tough and takes a lot of work. And I think it's really hard to balance with a full-time oh, job. Oh, for sure. And, you know, I think it's... Maybe you could strike lightning in a bottle and that could work, but I don't think that's a good recipe. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's definitely something that's not sustainable long term. But if you're 25 years old, 26 years old, and you have that type of endurance and you have the drive and you, you can swing into it, 
You know, like it doesn't have to be the, the drop of a hammer and like the pickup of totally, another totally. one. Uh, when like when I first started this podcast, you know, I was I was working in a restaurant, I was driving Uber, and I was doing the podcast. And then I worked fewer hours in the restaurant, more Ubering, and still doing the podcast. Quit the the restaurant full time Ubering with taking my computer, and then eventually I drove a little less. I drove a little less. I drove a little less, and I was full time on the podcast. You know, hundred percent. And look, yeah. I was I was young. I wasn't married, didn't have kids, you know, like I had the flexibility to just put all of my non Bridgewater time into yeah, stickies, exactly. which is what I did. Exactly. Uh, you know, like I, I don't even know how I could, I couldn't do that now, right? I have like young kids and you know, I couldn't do that at this point in my life, what I could do then. Yeah. And you, you weren't doing this alone, right? When you, when stickies was st- started, it was you and a partner, correct? Correct. So I started with a, a friend of mine and the original plan was, he was going to run the business and I was going to keep my job at Bridgewater and, and again, help out on nights and weekends, do more of the kind of finance type type role um, in the business. And also, you know, I was seeding the business with with money. So well, I was going to ask, were you were you the, the so I was the original kind of investor, right? Got the it. seed investor. And so I put in basically everything that I'd saved from my first, you know, three or four years working, uh, working in finance. And, you know, what I learned was that was enough to get us. You know, half of it went to uh, a security deposit and key money on our first restaurant, and then you know the other half went pretty quickly. It yeah. was it was not enough to even get the first door open. <laughs> and this is a big lesson. And um, I think again, so uh, yeah, like people don't op- open with enough of an operating runway or like that like that operational cost. Like you need you, everything was on a shoestring, and yeah. and you know again, I put in every everything that I had saved, um, and it wasn't close to enough, and so. You know, I then once we realized I wasn't going to be enough to get the the restaurant open, I then uh, you know went to my dad. I went to one of my best friends who was a you know a successful finance guy, more successful than me in finance, and you know they helped kind of seed the original restaurant to get it not only through opening but also through the kind of first six months of uh, you know learn you know. Are you steep, comfortable steep talking about curve. numbers? Is that something? Yeah. Okay. So, what did you, what, reflecting back, was there a number that you thought before you went to anybody else? This is what I'm going to put up. This is what we need to do. This. Did you have that number? I mean, we had a number. It wasn't enough, and we had no <laughs> idea what, what it was going to cost to get the restaurant open. I mean, I think you know, like we were dumb enough to think. I mean, the first money that I put into the to the business was eighty thousand dollars, and okay. like. You know, we were dumb enough to think that that was going to get us a that restaurant. That might have been able to get you off the ground like fifteen or twenty years. Yeah, ago. and maybe fifteen or twenty years ago, like not in New York City. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, um, and these, how far short were you at eighty thousand dollars? So, you know, that got us that that got us into the rest into the first location, and um, you know, about two months into building it out. So, knowing what you know now, what would have been that number? Knowing what you know now, what do you think you should? I mean, have we ended up getting that first restaurant open. For about two hundred thousand dollars, okay. that's probably what it what it what it took to get from kind of ideation of the concept to getting the door open on the yeah. first restaurant, and that's we you know, and that's really low. I mean, you know, we took over an existing restaurant, we really didn't do much. Um, so the people that I've spoken to, they and this this is people that open restaurants for a living. They still shoot for whatever they think it is. They add another fifty percent on. If you're doing this for the first time, add a hundred percent on because there's just going to be things that you don't. Like you could try and try and try to do a pro forma. There's just, you're going to be off. There's things you're not going to take into consideration unless you have a consultant there who does this for a living. Double it if you're doing it for the first time. Find somebody who's done the thing <laughs> yeah. that you've done before and really get some hard 
real life data points yeah. on, on what those on what those components are and what those things cost. So take us, yeah, take it. Sorry, did I cut you I short? Mean, no, I mean we really like we were kind of just shooting from the hip, yeah. right? You know, you know, young, eager, excited. So you know, thought we could move mountains and pretend that you're speaking to the the, the version of yourself, that 26 year old version of yourself, right now. Knowing what you know now, reflecting back at that time, the things that you did that you wish you did or you would have done differently, what advice do you have for yourself? You know, look, there's a lot of like, a lot of different ways I could go with that question. Yeah. Um, you know, related to just the, the business. I mean, I think a lot of things broke our way, right? Like we ended up taking on this restaurant that um, maybe wasn't in the best location, but it at least had a lot. What of was the, the first location? It was on uh, West Eighth Street in uh, Greenwich Village. How many square feet was it? Uh, about 750 square feet. It was nine feet wide. What you percentage know, that was um, kitchen and... It service? was probably 70% kitchen. Got it. Um, tiny little dining room, you know, tiny little hole in the wall. We couldn't... You know, I ended up changing the operating model at our second location, and that's what we've kind of built off of. So that was all, always like just a little bit of a you know, one-off from everything else that we ended up doing. Yeah. Um, but you know, it was a blessing in disguise. Sticky's one Yeah, it was a blessing in disguise because yeah, you know, if we had taken on a restaurant that had where we had to like do you know put it, put in bigger things like do major electrical work or having to upgrade you know gas and utilities or you know having to put in an exhaust stack like all of those things. So we had no idea what we were doing. We wouldn't have been able to do that. It would have you know we I, I, like. I think back and if we had to take that on, we might have failed. So let me rephrase the question. What did knowing what you know today wouldn't tell us what you know you did right then? You know, I think what we what we did right was we found a location that we could actually we're actually able to get open and that was also in a bad enough location that you know, while we had like really exce- like our customers loved us, you know, we were in a, it was kind of sleepy during the day, but you know, there's a little bit of late night traffic and some nighttime it was kind of in a college area, but it wasn't right on campus. So we kind of got the right amount of customer flow that we could handle. Yeah. Because if we were on like main and main, you know, we didn't have the systems to be able to support that. We didn't have the model to be able to support that kind of volume. It would have gone worse, right? Yeah. Like we, we weren't we weren't set up to do we, that, that store wasn't set up to be able to handle like two million dollars worth of volume or three million, you know, like we've ended up building stores that did, you know, $3 million in volume, but that store couldn't have handled it. And we didn't have the systems or the processes in place to get it, you know, to be able to actually like meet that demand. So yeah, it's kind of a blessing in disguise. Now I could, I could say, you know, like there's kind of two ways to look at it. You say, okay, well we're actually probably lucky that we chose that location, even though it wasn't a great, even though it wasn't a great store. Well, here are the things that just from listening to your story that I picked up on that I think you did right. Turnkey operation. Uh, that is huge for all the reasons you listed. The, the cost of going into a space and getting it to the point where you're just to code is where all of your expense comes from, right? And, and, and you had that taken care of. What was the restaurant before you? Was, was it the same exact equipment that you were using? No, different equipment, but we kept more or less the same layout. It was an okay. Italian restaurant okay. called Tanti Bacci. Got it. Um, so what did you have some, you probably had a range and oven fry later. Yeah, we, exactly. we had three fryers and we had a little range oven combo, but pr- probably all you really needed was the, was the fryers and the range for the sauces, right? Yeah. And, and we had, we have like a, it was a combo range charbroiler that we use. We make grilled chicken also. So got we had it. a charbroiler for that. Got it. Got it. So, I mean, just right there, you're just saving so much. The, the turnkey, um, the other thing I wrote down was in, this is something I picked up from interviewing, um, 
he was like the director of growth or something for uh, Raising Cane's. His, uh, Paul Tunerman had him on the show, and he was a big part of taking that brand and scaling it. And he said his strategic model was college campuses with chicken fingers. He's like, this is our target market. He's like, we're looking for college campuses and that we can put either on or next to what, what was that part of your strategy? Did you know, did you know who your target market was going to be? We knew that our target audience was kind of young professionals. So we wanted to be downtown. We were hyper-focused on either East village, lower East side, Greenwich village, Soho. We wanted to be downtown Manhattan. That's where the young people were. We wanted to capture like the, the real, the young professional, the people going out, having a good time, partying. Like we knew that was going to be a great kind of core demographic for us. And you know, that still is really a, a big, you know, our core demographic. I mean, just through walking in when we first came here, like, yeah, like young people gravitate towards chicken fingers. And um, were, did you know being close to that college was going to help you? How close were you to the college? Which so college was it? It was NYU. Uh, you know, we were a few blocks away, although, you know, real estate is tricky. And you learn that, you know, even being one or two blocks kind of off of the main drag can have huge impact. Like, you know, so we were kind of technically, you know, very close to NYU, but we weren't on any, we weren't on a street where any of their major dorms were, or any of the major, you know, like kind of like uh, office, like, uh, you know, student buildings, any of that stuff. Campus. Yeah, yeah. Like we weren't really on campus. We were just off campus and we weren't like on a street where you'd have to walk from your dorm to your classroom. So it wasn't too far away that people weren't willing to go. Exactly. So, you know, you'd get them when they were, when they were wandering around more in the evening or late night, yeah. um, as opposed to, you know, popping in for lunch during the day in between classes. Yeah. Another big lesson I picked up on is that sometimes right on the edge is right on the edge right now. But if you can hang on for five years, right on the edge is going to be in the middle because growth tends to happen from the inside out. So if you're thinking of a, a centrific circle, you have a circle and then, you know, some, like there's circles around that. If you can get right on the edge of wherever that, that center is, you might be out. But like it won't, if especially if you're in a growing market, it's not going to take long for that market to grow around you. So I think that's true, right? When you think about probably New York City as a whole, right? Yeah. You look at like the markets just outside of Manhattan, like the Brooklyn, Bronx, Queens, you know, Jersey City, Hoboken. All of these have seen tremendous They're growth. Hot right now, super yeah. hot. Manhattan itself is not an emer- a growing market. Flat Manhattan high. was already, you know, very you, you much only established. Go so high. Yeah, and it was already established <laughs> and built out, and yeah. so. You know, what was funny was that we were on this block, 8th Street, just got like a ton of right up, like it seemed like got a ton of attention from the real estate world and the broker world about how this was like the emerging, you know, the next big block and the emerging thing. Like there was an article in Wall Street Journal about it, about, you know, how, where it's going to be in 10 years. And I haven't really seen that happen. You know, I, frankly, in the, in, the time, in the time that we've been on that block, yeah. you know, I've seen... Mostly other restaurants turn over and I think of like Austin right now, Austin, Texas. Are you familiar with this? Uh, yeah, a little bit. A little I'm bit. thinking about it because we just were talking to Liz Solomon, who's from Austin, from um, uh, King David Taco. Thank you very much, Bob. But East Boston was, you know, wasn't known for being in the center of anything. It was it was where basically the, the um, lower class citizens lived but over time but it was on the edge and Austin's exploding right now so anything that opened in Austin five or ten years ago that was able to hang on is in the middle of a lot of good stuff right now and you see it in different places so if you can get on the edge and you think you have something and you can hold out you you're likely sitting pretty if you totally you know yeah. especially if you're in if you're in a market that's really emerging and growing right yeah. if you're like you know whether it's Austin or something like Nashville you know like I'm sure what was kind of off the main you know 
off the beaten path, a lot of those places are probably now really like smack dab in the middle of where the action is. Anywhere in the mid the Midwest right now is on fire, is growing. People are moving away from big cities. I don't think the big cities, like New York's not going anywhere. No, New York's not going anywhere, <laughs> yeah. but like New York was already yeah, at its peak when exactly. we started, right? It exactly. wasn't like you know, things were being discovered, right? Yeah. Like downtown Manhattan has been a thing for a long time, right? Yeah. We weren't, we weren't really on the, on the cutting edge of, you know, like, Oh, this is the next big thing, you know? Exactly. So you, you get into this first restaurant, um, you realize you just kind of get started. What were the things uh, reflecting back? Um, you said that you, you open, on your second, how long did it take you to open your first from your first location to your second? So we got our first to open in March of 2012 and it took us about two and a half years before we got our second restaurant open. So what was that first year like? What were the big learning curves for you? I mean, the first year was insane. Um, you know, we le- like I'll just again, I, I when we start when we opened up the first restaurant, I was still working at Bridgewater and about 2 months in, um, it became clear that, you know, to save this thing and I'd already put my own money, my dad's money, my friend's money to get this thing open and you know, w- like we had seen an incredible customer response. Like everyone in the area loved what we were doing. But, you know, at the same time, we were just like bleeding money, right? Yeah. And we didn't really know how to operate a restaurant, which makes sense because we'd never operated a restaurant before. You don't know until you yeah, know. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the, the guy who I started the business with is like very kind of creative, passionate guy, um, not really a business guy. And so, you know, I had kind of come in and just really started from the basics of like, okay, how much are, how much is like, Here's what we're selling it for. How much does it cost us to make it, right? And and you, this sounds so obvious. It sounds right? so obvious, but you know, again, you, you know, it's obvious. But you go back this to us why, at twenty five, and it's like the stuff you're going over right now is why this podcast exists. Because if you don't know, you just don't know. Like uh, somebody who's at sixteen locations knows to the penny of what every chicken finger goes out cost. But when you're just getting started, you're just cooking, and you're like, well, how much do we charge? Well, this place is charging this much. Maybe we should do like a dollar less, so we are, are com- com- compete. And it's just easy to get caught. Up. I mean, there's so much going on. There's so much emotion, and like it's just easy to get caught up yeah. in that. And so, like, like you have to get back to the basics, though. Like, again, for any new business, right? You want to build customers. You want to mm-hmm. build a brand. That's that's paramount. But you know, you also have to try to build a business that can make money. Because yeah. if you're not making money, then you're not you're just not going to be able to. Be short long, long you're not going to be around for very long. Yeah. And so you know, again, like just thinking about how much each item was going to cost and how you know, like I I came in and took a bunch of things off the menu, not because they weren't good. So you keep on saying you, you came in. So I'm, I'm assuming that you were working most of your time was still full time doing the for the first two, months, two of, months of the first restaurant. You know, I was there again. Nights and weekends, but you know the day to day management of the business was was happening by, with my uh, partner. Okay, and um, so basically, it sounds like you guys were really good with the brand. It was really good with the the, the focus on quality, doing good product, but where you were bleeding the money was on like the the operational side of things. Yeah, systems, food, processes. food cost and labor in a huge way, right? Okay. Like, and we were we. Are, I remember coming. I remember just looking, running, running like the the back of the envelope numbers of like, okay, you know, we're gonna do. $200 this hour in sales and we got like seven people working and they make X number per hour. It's like, okay, well, you know, we're, our, our payroll is like 150 bucks this hour and we're only doing two or $250 in, in sales. Like that's not going to work. Yeah. This math that's not going to work. work. Yeah, yeah. This math doesn't work. So 
you said you came in, um, let's focus on food costs. When you came in and really started to drill down and saying, what do we need? Like, how do we need to turn this thing around to get to the point where we're profitable and we can go scale this thing and take it to the next level? What was the first thing you did? The first thing I did was actually, you know, negotiate with our vendor. Like I had this big aha moment, right? We had, we very early on, we'd built up a big, um, debt to our first food vendor. And part of that was, you know, we had, uh, you know, my partner had like, there was a restaurant next door. My partner, like the chef there was trying to like help us out. He came out, he came in, was working with my, working with my partner on kind of exploring different menu options, but really they were just buying a ton of different things that either never made it on the menu or had no business being on the menu. And so we racked up this huge debt to our, to our food distributor, which I had to negotiate and kind of work down. So Uh, what, at this point, what were you purchasing from your distributor and what were you doing in house? I mean, just raw ingredients. Like, you know, everything comes from a distributor like raw, exactly. Raw, raw chicken tenderloin, you know, like all the raw ingredients and we were making everything in house. But, um, you know, we were again. We're doing a lot of different things, testing a lot of different things. A lot, you know, a lot went into R and D, and but just also a lot went into some menu items that we just kind of thrown out there. I mean, we served ribs, we served like a bunch of different random stuff that like we just was never part of the the core, right? We made these purple sweet potato fries um, <laughs> that were really great, but we were getting these you know crazy expensive cases of of purple sweet potatoes. You know, I think like imported from Japan. Right. You know, they, they were so hard and such oddly shaped that like just cutting them, they wouldn't go through the fry press. So you had to cut them by hand. It took like three hours to cut a case of these things. And we we're selling them for like four bucks. And, yeah. you know, and so, like we probably would have had to sell them for like $15 to make a profit on. Them. Yeah. And, and that's not what we were trying to do. So you, you shave things that weren't just worth your time and effort. And you also negotiated on the ingredients from the purchase. Yeah. So, I mean, a big aha moment was there's this thing called the restaurant depot. If you know, if you know what it is yeah. and you know, when we were, when we were, uh, kind of at odds with our first food vendor, um, I'm like, well, I guess we're just going to have to buy from the restaurant depot. So I came in <laughs> and I literally just would pack chicken on ice in the backseat of my car and just drove it. You know, I became my own distributor from the restaurant depot, but it was super eye opening because I spent so much time looking at all these invoices of what these guys had ordered and why, why we owed them so the, much the money. Data analyst, the, 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 the money is the, the follow the numbers guy, just looking at sheets, looking at the numbers. You know, I was trying to figure out how did we build up such a big debt to our food distributor in such short amount of time. So I'm looking at all these invoices. So I'm remembering like, oh yeah, we paid this for this thing. We paid that. So I just remember going into, going into the restaurant depot and looking at this invoice and being like, oh, ketchup. Four one gallons cost forty bucks here. Wait a minute, our food distributor is charging us seventy bucks for it. Like what the fuck, yeah. You know, all these like it had all these moments of like, wow, we are being price gouged. And so, what's the what's the key? Like, if how to get your costs back into control with John Sherman from Stickies, and now fill in the blank. How do you do that? Like, everything is negotiable, right? Like, if you're if you're just starting a new restaurant. Off the street, you call up your, you call up some food, dis, dis, you know, food distributor with no introduction. It's like, hey, I want to buy food from you. You're probably going to get the worst prices out there, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're going to, tra- they're, you know, they don't know who you are. You know, you have no credit. You have no, like, you have no scale. They're just, they're going to just overcharge you. That, was, they figure, that wasn't no skill. That was no scale. no scale. Yeah, no scale. So you're weighing things. No, no, no. I mean, like, no scale of your business, right? Oh, like, you have okay, one okay. store. You're not going to order a bunch of stuff. Okay. You know. So, you know, if you don't know what things should cost, it's easy to get taken advantage of. And so, I mean, that was happening in a huge way. So even just me going out and going out, pricing everything at the restaurant depot so that I could go back to our new food distributor and be like, all right, here's how much all this shit should cost. Yeah. And so, you know, it gave us some leverage to negotiate prices. So step one, go look at the other prices. Yeah. Step two, 
document the other prices. Make sure you have something to show, have evidence, have proof, so you don't look like you're just making things up. Yeah, What's figure out first? what these things should cost, and then yeah. you got to negotiate, right? Yeah. Like, you know, all these, you know, I've had, you know, I've worked with a handful of different distributors over the years, and you know, it's all a negotiation, right? They look at your account and they have to make money off of you, so you know, they can't just go lower and lower forever. But I found, especially early on, there was so much probably fluff built into the prices we were getting that like you know you just i asked and the prices just came down like yeah. literally i remember like the boxes we were buying you know again there's the same kind of thing i went to our paper distributor and was like oh, you're, like i know you know you're way you're, these are way high I, yeah. like i can get something equivalent for so much less and like just asking and they came down like 10 20 so percent literally go through all of your cost of goods yeah and just line item by line item by line item look up see if you can't like Price compare, find what you need, and bring that data to the sales rep so you have something. Exactly, and then that will be power negotiating. And, and, power you know, and, and even you know, even if you have to bluff a little bit, like, oh, you know, my I know the guy from this restaurant who's buying this from you, and he's paying X for it. So yeah. you know, what about menu engineering or just like costing? Where were you with costing at this point? Where how did you come up with the cost of a chicken finger or a meal? Like, where were you with that? So you know, when we we kind of just. When we first opened the restaurant, I think we just went with like our gut of like, yeah, this feels like this should cost That's $9, what everybody does. right? Yeah. You know, there was not a science to it. You know, what, what I did was tried to come in and how can we engineer the recipes to meet the cost that we had? Like if something was off, like if we couldn't get there, that well, it's got to come off the menu. So um, instead of um, ordering, um, instead of saying, okay, this is how, this is our set recipe. Let's figure out to the penny of what it's going to cost us, including labor to produce this. You set it and then you reverse engineered it and said, we want to keep the prices more or less. I mean, the thing I didn't want to do is just come out, you know, and just jack up prices on things that, you know, that we were, that we were already selling to our customers, right? I didn't think that'd be a good look. We're a new brand. We didn't want to rub any customers the wrong way. So, you know, it was really about, let's just find the items that, you know, we can either change a recipe to get into the cost structure or frankly, some of the items we had, you know, the, the base chicken fingers and sauces were actually fine, right? That wasn't the issue. The bigger issue was around just all the other ancillary stuff they yeah. were trying to do. So you know, like he, like we were getting, we made a sandwich and we were getting these like Balthazar bread, like this really fancy bread for our sandwich, and it just wasn't even the best product. Yeah. It didn't even make sense as a from a culinary standpoint, and it was just crazy expensive. So where, what else did you do for, during this first store before opening your second store to kind of really get you set up for that second location? So you know the the menu really evolved. We really tried to just focus in the menu. We were still doing a bunch of different things, but tried to focus the menu on you know how can we deliver like how can we just get our best product that we can execute consistently and also try to get our ticket times down because the way that stores was built was everything was kind of cooked to order and you know when we would get busy it would be slow to produce food and yeah. we were in you know again we we're in a neighborhood with college kids and you know young like it wasn't people had patience with us for sure but it's new york city right people don't have patience yet, yeah. right people want you know people want everything on the spot and so i kind of knew if we were going to go into a higher traffic location you know we had to really dramatically train change the operation to be able to get to really enhance our throughput like we had a lot of bottlenecks in our kitchen setup so i'm guessing one of the things you did cuz it kind of already came to the surface once is you eliminated a lot of things off your menu we eliminated a bunch of things off our menu we also we also changed how we were making some things right so like you know we had six different chicken fingers that with six different types of breading right so everything was cooked to order every, you know you like and it just, it was, they were all cool, great products, yeah. but like really hard to produce, took a lot of time to make, and also just 
wasn't you know when you were slammed it was hard to like you would get backed up and you know there was kind of no way out yeah and so you know one of the thing one of the things that i tested in that first store that we launched to the second store was like i think we can recreate a lot of these flavor profiles with using the same chicken finger but just using different sauces and using different toppings and ingredients on you know in addition to that chicken finger to create to recreate that dish without having to have six different breadings on our chicken fingers got it so which again was really cool, but just not you know not if people wanted to get their food in you know a reasonable amount of time. So how many? You only have one type of chicken finger now, right? You've narrowed it down. Do you have multiple? Tri- uh, we basically have two types of chicken okay. fingers. We have a, a a fried chicken finger and a grilled chicken finger. Got it. Got it. Um, I mean, but yeah, I mean, you're putting all of your energy. So how did you choose which one? Was it based off sales? So you know, we always had our kind of core chicken finger, and then we had all these different, more exotic versions of it. And so, you know, I just really tried to build a menu where I could recreate some of those exotic versions and flavors without having to bread this one in pretzel bits or bread this one in tortilla chips or, you know, and all that. Got it. So you just streamline process. basically. Correct. Streamline the process to be able to still, you know, create all these different awesome experiences and unique um, menu offerings without having to be so complicated in the back of house. So was it one year or two years you went from one to two locations? Um, it was about a little over two years. So you must have turned things around. You must have gotten into the black. Yeah, you know, again, it was when, once we really started to look at like how much do these things cost to make, yeah. you know, how, we got to be able to make money on the dishes we're selling and let's figure out a way to staff the store to the business that we're doing. You know, once we kind of got those in place, yeah. then, let's, let's, you know, can we pull up some labor um, tips, like how you shifted your labor as far as like, how did you get to the point where you could afford your labor? Like what, what significant tweaks did you make? I mean, the biggest thing is, right, you got to understand what are you going to be doing in sales and let's build a schedule to, to be able to meet those sales and also try to hit the targets that you have for, you know, whether, however you look at it, right? When you look at, you know, labor as a percentage of sales or, you know, sales per labor hour, you know, you have to have that. Here's what we're trying to achieve and what's, what's the schedule where I can achieve, where I can still create great experiences and, and meet our demand, but also try to achieve those numbers. Got it. Um, okay. So when you, when the second location came around, how did you know you were ready for it or were you not? We were ready for it. You know, again, a lot of thought went into like, okay, we're going to change this service model, right? Everything, the first store, everything was cooked to order. The second store, I'm like, okay, we're going to limit the number of things that we're cooking so that we can cook them in larger batches during peak hours and get them out faster. And so, you know, we designed this whole restaurant to be able to service that and, you know, basically from night one, it kind of worked. Yes. Yeah, so it wasn't perfect and it's evolved, but it, it by and large worked. So you narrowed down your offering even further. What was the offering here versus the other store? Like how much? Well, that no, that's where we went from. We're not doing all these different oh, breadings. Got it. You know, so it was early more- on, we narrowed down all the crazy stuff that we weren't making money, but we still, for the first two years, we still had all these different chicken fingers with all these different breadings. I mean, we had one that, you know, we would literally like julienne um, a, a chicken tender and stuff it with cheese and then roll it back up and egg wash it and, you know, like all these things, you know, bread it and then rebread it. And it was like a cheese, a cheese stuffed chicken finger. <laughs> awesome. I bet it was amazing. It was incredible. And we've done it at LTO since then. It's incredible. Uh, but, you know, it takes a lot of time to make and, you know, it's not really conducive for throughput. Got you. So, um, what were the from this point on, where you really start to focus on uh, paying attention to the numbers, uh, off, making your offering l- not less but fewer options, right? Um, and streamlining the process to execute those options. Uh, what were the other key? I mean, those were kind of like the the initial transitional 
like accelerating points for you, right? What were the next ones? If you could step a few steps back and take a look at the big picture of where you started with stickies and where you are today, like what were the big evolutionary changes? I mean, the, the big thing is really building a team, you know, like we had, you know, we had some early, you know, some, some great early employees. Um, we didn't really have the structure, the training, right? Like, you know, we were all super hands-on, right? Like yeah. we were hire somebody, I would train them. You know, we didn't have a training manual or anything like that. I just like, I knew how to operate the point of sale system. All right. Your first day, I'm going to show you how to operate this thing. Yeah. You know, when we opened up our second location, you know, like I was frying chicken, you know, we, we didn't really have, you know, we had our, our back of house team from the original store. We didn't really have a team yet. We had a couple guys that we had hired and we had these like two, like 18 year old kids who, you know, we had, they, they helped us like do some dirty work when we were getting this building out the store and literally night one of the first restaurant, I'm like, all right, just watch me for the first night and I'm going to show you how to cook. I'm going to show you how to fry chicken at Stickies. And then by night two, they were doing it with me. And by night three, you know, they were, I was watching them do it. So it was building a team. It was hiring the right people, training. Um, how has that evolved over time? Where was your training then and where is it now? What about your, your hiring process? How has that evolved? So, you know, we, it's been, a, it's, it's, you know, the hiring process and kind of what we're looking for has been an evolution, right? I think we started with, we didn't even know what we were looking for. It's kind of just like the vibe, right? Yeah. Do you fit the vibe? Do we like you? You know, all well, right, it's a big you're hired. Part of it. Yeah, of course. It's a big part of it. And like, you know, when you're the person in the, you know, you're in the restaurant all, you know, all day, 24 seven, like, it's like, who do you want to be around? Right. That that's definitely a big part of it. Um, as we got to like, you know, two, three, four locations, we put a big, um, we still didn't have, I mean, we kind of had our processes a little bit more narrowed down, but we still didn't have like a robust training program. Yeah. And so, but like at that point in time, we really leaned on trying to bring in experienced people so that like, they would come in and they would be comfortable in a kitchen and they kind of knew what to do. Like you could show them how we do it, but you didn't have to teach them the basics of like how to operate a fryer, how to wash dishes, you know, like they, they kind of knew how to, you know, they knew how to use a knife. They knew how to, you know, yeah. break down stations. Right. Got and so, you know, we definitely put a big focus, you know, at that period of time, put a big focus on hiring experience because we didn't have the tools or systems to train ourselves. Um, this is something that we have now kind of, you know, as we've evolved or trying to move away from that. And really, you know, we're now at a place now that we have much more robust training program where we can really teach you the basics of everything that we do. We can teach you how to, you know, clean out a fryer. We can teach you all of these things. Um, so, you know, we can really now focus on hiring for personality and, you know, and traits and attributes. And, you know, do we think that you're the right person for this? And as long as you have the aptitude to learn what we're going to teach you, uh, you know, we think you could be successful here. So, and so really trying to go for personality and culture over experience. Yes. But I'll you can that. only do that. You can't do that if you don't have the systems and the environment that to get them trained. Because if you just brought in these people who, you know, are great people, but don't know how to work in a restaurant, you know, if you don't have a good way to train them, like it's gonna, it's not gonna work. No, absolutely. So now that you know what that looks like, and for the listeners who are like, resonating with yeah i'm at that point where i have to hire on skill and experience because i haven't built my training up yet paint the picture of where you are today with your training what a good robust training program looks like what do you offer your team now what does that look like so you know we have a very kind of built out program where somebody comes in and every single day of their training is is already laid out right they know okay day one you know it's going to be the overall brand orientation, you're going to meet with your manager, you know, who's responsible for your training. They're going to, you know, just give you the general introduction to our restaurant. Right. And then it's like day by day, here's all the things that we're going to teach you on. And then, you know, there's kind of 
tests and checkpoints built into that. And so, you know, we have a training process kind of for, for each rule, right? We come in, okay, we're going to train you to work. Here's to work in the front of house. There's going to be a separate training process to work in the back of house. Um, and then, you know, then separately, if you're coming in for a management role, you do all of that. Everyone does the kind of front of house, back of house. And then, you know, then there's the additional management training that happens only after you're kind of trained at the, at the line. So if I'm a new employee, do I get, so I get cross trained in every element of the, the, we, we train, we cross train you on everything in the restaurant. They're not huge restaurants, you yeah. know? So there's kind of basically three main roles. There's like, you're either you're cooking, you're working in the front, you know, hand, you know, building our dishes and also interacting with guests and, or you're prepping food. Got it. And so, so like you know, three stations. Yeah, more or less. And so, you know, I mean, there's stations within those, but, uh, so, you know, we, we try to cross train everybody. And so, you know, generally some people will gravitate more to the run role or the other, but you know, we're definitely, we're, we're, we're trying to cross train everybody and certainly every, you know, lead and manager is cross trained on yeah. every station. And this goes back to focusing on doing one thing really well. It sets you up for success everywhere else. Cause now your training is focused on doing a few things really well. You don't have to train how to execute 50 different dishes with zero experience. Hey, like your job is to do this well, this one element of the whole process. Your job is to bread the chicken finger. Right, you train them on that. I don't know how exactly how. I'm just using an example. Like no, 100. percent I yeah. mean, look, there's even even with only making a pretty streamlined menu, there's still a lot of different things that we do. So you know, yes, it's it's more straightforward, and when we can focus on the most important things, um, and I think that is that that gives us an advantage over you know going. I mean, I look at some restaurants and just have like crazy long menus doing a million different things, and you know, I, like it just baffles me that you have somebody who's able to do all those things and remember the recipe for each thing, you know? So what about keeping up with your training program in the sense of you go through the process, you say, this is what it's going to be like. We know how crazy you can get in a restaurant, like where, you know, you have a new hire coming in that day, but somebody else calls out sick. So you can't train. So you have to go do this thing over here. And then before you know it, they never go through the process. Like, is there like, what are the checks and balances and the things that you do to make sure that no, Day one, you're you're going through the process. How do how does that how do you make sure yeah, like it's done? It's really tough, right? You want, I mean, one of the things that we've learned and we do is like you know when when if we have somebody, not only is the person being trained, you know, not a body in the schedule, but even the person doing the training is not a body on the schedule, yeah. so that you know they don't have to be put in that situation of like, do I train this person or do I go do you know or do I go serve this guest? Yeah. Right? They know they're there to train now shit comes up and sometimes, sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll plan. Yeah. But you know, that, that's how we, you know, that's how we try to plan for that. So those, you know, those things don't happen, but you know, another key piece that I think that we're really working on and trying to build out a process to do this is ongoing training, right? Because you know, you come in, okay, you, you work, you know, you work a week in the kitchen, you work a week in the front, we teach you everything, but you know, you got a lot of information coming at you. And you know, the, the reality is like, you're not going to remember every single thing that we taught you. Right. Like it takes time. It takes reps to, for those things to become kind of second nature. And, you know, it's not just like, okay, we've trained you for two weeks or we've trained you for a month. And now you're at like peak, peak performance level, you know, like that takes time and it takes reps. And, you know, we're always kind of thinking about and working on systems for how can we, you know, continue to get people up the curve, even if they're, you know, trained and now, you know, scheduled on the, on the, at the store, you know, we want to continue to invest in their development and, and really get them to be rock stars of their position so that they can, can, you know, not only will that benefit the restaurant and all of our guests, but 
also give them the opportunity to then take on the next the next uh, level up of uh, responsibility. Got it. Um, so, what was when you went from one location to two locations? Were you full time like? At this point, was like the the, the finance business behind you? Or yeah, like, okay. yeah. So I mean, again, two months two months into opening up the original right. store, you know, I I at least I gave it. I gave them my notice. I actually did kind of like a four month transition of I started to like scale back how much I was working there because yeah. I wanted to you know they wanted to give them a chance to like get my replacement for me to train them. I wanted to leave on good terms in case the restaurant blew up and I had to go back with my head in hand and ask for my job back. So and you're still working with your business partner at this point, right? Your business partner who um, the co founder. Uh, we had, he hasn't been working in the business for a while. Was he in the part of the second location? Uh, he was part of the business when, you know, he was still, we were still working together when we opened up the second location. Um, although, you know, at that point, you know, really my, my focus had been on kind of the operations and on also, you know, building out the restaurant. And I think his, his, he was focused more on kind of the brand. Okay. And the marketing side. Got it. I mean, it's good to have your lanes. I think it's, and sometimes you think you know how it's going to be and then you get into it and you don't, you start to realize through trial and error, well, you're better at this than I am. I'm better at this than you are. I'm going to focus on this. You focus on that. Divide and conquer. Stay in your lane. Yeah. We didn't really have that to start. And, you know, it was, I love uh, love the honesty. Yeah. You know, there certainly created challenges, right? Like neither of us, you know, it was tough, right? Because neither of us had restaurant experience. So it wasn't like, Either one could be like, oh, hey, I got this. I know what to do here. Yeah. You know, we were both really like figuring it out on the fly. So how, what, I mean, do you, did you ever change the way you did things at store one? Like when you went to store number two and you, you refined process and you focused your energy, did that echo throughout all locations or? Totally. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we built, we kind of, that second location was kind of the new service model and we changed some of the things that we did at the original store, but but we could never fully get it onto the new service model just because of the layout. So right? you're saying it, service model? You're saying you, like you were went from full service to fast casual? Yeah, it wasn't full service, but service. but everything it was counter service and it was cooked to order. So you'd go walk to a counter, you'd place your order, then you'd go sit in the dining room and wait for us to bring it out. Okay. Um, you know, our restaurants now. You go to the counter, you tell us what you want, we build your dish, and then we ring you out Got right it. there. So like you're you're leaving the counter with your food. Got it. And so, you know, it's just a much faster experience. Got it. So, again, thinking of this idea of evolution, pivotal points for you, we've identified you focused on uh, just you paid attention to the numbers, you really narrowed down to your expenses, then you thought about processes to streamline and to do things more efficiently and quickly at a more affordable cost. And then you thought about, okay, well, we got train. We were talking about training and how you built your training program. That was the next evolution, people hiring. We didn't talk so much about hiring. How did you change your hiring process? Well, you know, I mean, we talked a little bit about what we were looking for, right? It kind of went from, you know, really looking for you know, experience to really looking for personality. Uh, you know, and, and, it's, and it's a mix. And, and it's also, you know, like we have 13 restaurants. And so, you know, we have general managers who, you know, we want them to be invested in who they bring on to their restaurant, right? Like we don't want to centrally hire everyone and then just kind of force people on a general manager yeah. who then is going to be like, oh, well, I didn't hire this person, you know, if there's an issue that comes up. So, you know, we really want our GMs to kind of own their, their four walls. And that's, and that's really starts with them having us having an influence on who their team is. Yeah. And so, you know, we're really working, you know, we've been working on giving them the tools and the knowledge that we have from our experience on how to do that well and, you know, empowering them to be able to do that on their own. And that's, that's a, that's a critical piece of, 
you know, because it's not, it's not an intuitive or easy thing to just, you know, you don't just wake up and know how to interview somebody and know what to look for in their yeah. responses. And, you know, frankly, you know, and that's been an evolution on us, right? Cause you could give them all the questions, but if you don't know what to look for in the answers, like the questions don't mean that much. So let's get, let's get into that. What are you looking for in the answers? Well, so, you know, it, it, we're really, again, now we're really trying to look for, um, you know, it depends on what position. First of all, I think for a general manager, there's a lot more technical things that we're looking for experience wise, like, and really an understanding of, you know, they, they, we want to have them have a certain level of kind of business acumen around how, how a restaurant operates. Um, you know, for, if you're coming in as a, as a crew member, you know, we're really, it's really much more around, you know, personality fit. Like, do we think that, you know, do we think that you're going to be the kind of person who cares about what they do, takes pride in their work, you know, wants, wants to do the right thing for themselves, for the business, cares about giving guests great experience, right? Like hospitality is this thing that kind of some people have and some people don't, yeah. right? Like, you know, there's certain kind of people who, you know, you want to make sure that everyone around you is comfortable and having a good time, right? The kind of like the party hosts type of person. And then there's other people who, you know, just don't give a shit if other people are having a good time or not. And yeah. like, you know, that's totally fine. They have their place in the world, but they're not really, they don't really have their place in hospitality. Yeah, I hear you. So one thing you mentioned earlier that I wanted to go deep in, and I want to make sure we have time for this, is that you tend to be a data-driven individual, that you're, you've kind of been trained to look at the numbers, follow the numbers. What numbers are you focused on today? If when you, what, in 2012, 10 years ago, you were focused on the costs and the comparing costs and negotiating with the vendors, and that's the data that, that you had sucked in then, what data sucks you in today? I mean, there's a couple of different things. One of the things that we're really focused on is on data, data around our customers and really understanding who our customers are, but even more so like what their behavior is. And, and so that can inform us on how we want to engage with them. How are you mining this data? So, you know, it's, it's complicated, right? Because we have customers who come in from all different kinds of places, right? We have our own website and, and app ordering platform. And so like those customers, we have the most amount of information on. And so we can really get, you know, we can really understand who they are and what their behaviors are. Um, ones who come in the front door, it's harder. And, you know, and we're also getting customers from third-party platforms like Uber Eats and, and, and Grubhub. And, you know, you don't, you have some information on them, but not, it's not as easy to paint a picture about, you know, kind of how they, how they behave. So on the technology front, what are the three top resources you get data from? So, you know, our, I mean, our point of sale is kind of the number one. Like right now, it, we're, we're actually working on building in, building out like more of an internal database for us to put everything in. Yeah. But for right now, it's really our point of sale system because that has all of our sales data. That's kind of our point of truth for sales. Um, everything from every different place gets piped into our point of sale system, and that is that is the point of truth. So, uh, what are the, what are the big elements that you're looking for in the point of sale? The big elements that you're when you think of data. You think of point of, point of sales, like which which numbers really pull you in? I mean, look, you know, at, at the most basic level, right? Like, we want to know how much we're selling, you know, how much how much we're selling, yeah. so that you know we can build schedules off of that. How much we're selling and when, so that yeah. we can build schedules. We want to know where the sales are coming from to understand, you know, our business and where our customers are coming from and where there are opportunities to find more customers. And then we also want to know what we're selling, right? So just being able to understand. What dishes are popular? What dishes resonate? You know, when we, you know, we're not, we don't like overhaul our menu, but we do make changes and uh, there's always kind of opportunities to improve the menu at the margins. And, 
you know, if you have an item or if you, you know, in our case, we have 18 different sauces. So if you have a sauce that, you know, I think is really good, but like people aren't ordering, then that's an opportunity to put on a better a sauce yeah. that maybe people are going to order more. Got it. Got it. Uh, are there any other technologies that you're excited about when it comes to mining data? That's not so obvious. Well, so, you know, right now, right, we've built this ecosystem around of technology, which is been working for us well, where all of our different touch points talk to each other, right? So we have a we have a tool that we use to schedule our, our staff, right? And then we have a tool, you know, you know, our our point of sale gets all of our gets all of our sales data, right? We have a tool that we use uh, to bring in all of our customer information into one place and analyze who our customers are and all that, and and, and then you know communicate with them. We have a tool that we use to do all of our kind of our our food costing and recipe costing and understanding, you know. How much does, you know, not only does how much does each cost, but we run this thing called an actual versus theoretical food cost saying, okay, you know, based off of what we sold, how much of each ingredient should we have purchased versus how much did we actually, so we can see what the opportunity is of, you know, around food waste and, and around, you know, running a, running a better uh, cost of goods budget. And so, you know, and, and, and there's even more than that, right? We so have you're, a, you're describing your tech stack, right? Yeah, now. our and tech stack. And so we've built it. So we were using all of these kind of, Third party, you know, we're using all these systems where our data lives on on those platforms, and then we've built integration so that they talk to each other. So data can go from one place to another and back and forth. And so, you know, we, we've kind of set up this ecosystem of of you know different silos that have integrations where data flows. But what we're actively building now is kind of one thing that sits a layer that sits in between them all that. You know, we're we're going to build out our own Middle custom layer. database yeah. that that everything flows into, and that becomes a source of truth for everything. Okay, so this is a big issue for a lot of restaurateurs, where they the the the, the API is what you call it is not open. There's closed APIs, so not everything plays well together. Your solution to that is to build your own middleware, which talks to everything and pulls everything together. And and so you know, so we've selected technology partners that do have open APIs that do talk to each other. So, you know, we've built this, yeah. I've thoughtfully built this tech stack and it, and it works. So I'm curious, do you mind talking about the, your tech stack and what you went with and why? And how yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, again, the center of it is, is called toast is our point of sale system. And again, the reason why I chose that was because the open API and that like they were kind of, they are the right partner if you want to do what I'm doing, which is like plug it into a bunch of different things. Yes. And right? that's the cool thing about Toast is they have so many partners they work with. And you don't purchase Toast and get access to all these partners at day one. You flip them on as you need them. So you you get to kind of custom build your solution, which is nice because yes. not every two restaurants built the, the exact Totally. Same and so we've been able to handpick, okay, for scheduling, we, we use something called Seven Shifts for scheduling. Love Seven you know, Shifts. So Current we, sponsor, we, thank you, Seven Shifts. All right, there we go. Thank you, Seven Shifts, yes. for this is helping not, us schedule our team. I'm not planting any And communicate to our employees. Right? This is all and natural. I've met some of the team. They're really nice. Yeah, they're great people. I love them. Uh, so we have POS toast labor man sorry uh, yeah labor management seven shifts uh, you said customer uh, analytics tool yeah so we're actually transitioning onto a platform called customer.io which is part of our uh, our web and app ordering platform called lunchbox so we use lunchbox is who we use for all of our you know our first party ordering system Okay, um, that's a company I've been looking to get more into, and there's so many out there. I love getting into this stuff because I'm really trying to be a place to go get organic recommendations, word of mouth, like still the most trusted way to share information. So, what were you using that you were that you got away from? So before that, I was using something called Brandable, and before that, we used something called Netwaiter, and before that, we used something called Ninefold. So, so they were my fourth uh, online ordering platform. 
Okay, so Lunchbox is different for customer analytics because... Well, so they actually, we're actually just moving on to... We were using a different company before that for our own kind of CRM. Got it. But customer we're, relationship management. Yeah, correct. But now, you know, Lunchbox has rolled out something that we are actively transitioning to now because it's all, you know... Like it's great to have all these different things that talk to each other, but you know, if you can eliminate one, that's also great. Yeah, if you can streamline, yeah. just like you did with your process. For exactly, food. if you can streamline something, that's a great opportunity. Yeah. So you know, like I, I chose Lunchbox because it's kind of a fortuitous, uh, a, a funny story where you know we were. I was in the market for for a new platform because um, I just had some challenges with the one we were working with, and I was uh, looking at actually a a competitor to Lunchbox and the. Uh, I, you know, had had conversations with them and I was on their website and the guy who did a testimonial on their website, um, is actually, I was, uh, in the process of founding, uh, lunchbox guy Nabil. And so I remember I was looking for Nabil cause he was a testimonial for this other online ordering platform. And then he was looking for me cause he's trying to pitch me on his <laughs> new thing. And so when we, when we found each other, I was like, Oh yeah, tell me about, you know, XYZ company. He's like, oh, no, 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 don't do that. Like, you got to check this thing out that I'm building. And so <laughs> we were literally like, I think, you know, their, fir- their first or second uh, um, customer outside of, you know, they came out of this restaurant, Bear Burger. So we were kind of their first uh, outside customer. So uh, Lunchbox, correct me if I'm wrong, when I think of Lunchbox, the first thing that comes to my mind is um, online presence, online ordering solution. Yes. So um, you brought them into the, co- the conversation saying there were, you're replacing your customer uh, resource or relationship management platform. So is this online customer relationship management? Is that yes, essentially correct? Okay. Yeah. So like email marketing, like what yeah, does e- it do? Like paint, like what are the features? What do you get? With I mean, you know, where we started was, yeah, was email marketing and being able to, you know, talk and send curated messages to our customers. But you know, Lunchbox is, is our platform of how customers can come to us and order directly from us. that we have full control over. So toast offers that too. So toast offers that. Um, but, it's not if you have like one restaurant and you're on toast i would just use the toast website ordering yeah. platform but you know there's certain kind of functionality and and really like user interface design that it's very limited and so to really build a great experience uh you know toast is not going to be the best option they know that right i mean yeah. I'm, I'm sure they know that right so like, but they also integrate lunchbox integrates with toast yeah so this is the cool thing about toast where i like them is because they're like yeah we have a solution but we can't be the solution for everyone. So for those people we can't be the solution for, we play nice with people who create a more customizable experience for the consumer user design. Like, and that's, is that correct me if I'm yeah, totally. And that's really what I was going after, right? Like basically, you know, we were on this platform and we'd been on it for a few years and I felt like I was just seeing all these other websites pop up that were just much more visually aesthetically pleasing, just much more kind of grab, grab your attention. And, you know, if you go into one of our restaurants, like we have a very visual brand, right? We have like all this cool artwork and design over all of our restaurants. And so, you know, it's like we really, I really wanted our digital experience to try to be as close as possible to that as well. And so, you know, that's, that's, that's what I was really looking to enhance. And I think, you know, in going through this process, right, like to really do it the best way you build it yourself, mm-hmm. but that's a huge expense, right? A lot of people, a lot of big companies, they'll use something like Olo, but they'll really build their own, you know, user interface and user experience on top of that. And, you know, and really with lunchbox, you get that, you get that, too, right? The user interface, Correct. user experience. Yes. I mean, so it's, now you get their template for it. So it's not, it's not all of your hopes and dreams. 
but you know, it was a step up from what we had. Got it. And this is, is this your website you're talking about? Like, do they build out your website or is so it we just built a- out our website separately, but on our website, you know, if you go to stickies.com and you hit order, then it, then it goes to, then it goes to the lunchbox or, or, or at least lunchbox developed that part of the site. Got it. That, that middle step between. Yes. Okay. Got it. Uh, you also mentioned food costing, recipe costing software and th- other third party softwares. What are you using for your food costing and recipe? So costing? we use something called restaurant 365 for that. Okay. Uh, why restaurant 365? Well, you know, we used we, we were using them for our accounting function, and you know, we were we were work we were really trying to get to this point of building out these uh, theoretical food cost that's programs. What, that's huge, and that's what my understanding of restaurant 365 is the most valuable aspect is the being able to forecast. Exactly, is that what sold you on it? Um, you know, we what sold us on it was just a more robust accounting platform for restaurants than when we, we came from QuickBooks, and so. Uh, you know, originally I, I migrated over there just for the accounting function. And then when I learned they had these other, this other thing, that's when we started to really build that out and focus yeah. on it. And it took a lot of time so to, this to is, build. This is a big conversation for people out there. Like, do I, when I open a restaurant, should I open with a, a more approachable, uh, basic accounting platform like QuickBooks, or should I go straight for an enterprise solution like restaurant 365? I mean, look on the one hand, right. When you open up, if you're if you're trying to build a chain of restaurants, right? When you open up your first one, it's you're never gonna. It's not it's not gonna look like your tenth store, no matter yeah. what you do, right? You're yeah. not gonna know exactly what you need. It's not gonna be perfectly dialed in. But as much as you can do to set up the infrastructure so that you don't have to go and change tools all the time, will make your life a lot easier. I mean, yeah. we've we've changed point of sale systems a few times. We've changed ordering platforms. We've changed counting systems. You know, every time you change, there's a big cost. Not, and it's not just a financial cost; it's just the time and the energy and, the, and yeah, the headache. new habits around exactly. It. You, yeah, it's you got to literally reshape your brain. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I remember. You know, we were. You know, we had we were using. You know, the the previous point of sale system you you use, right? Like you're on the screen and you're just you're not thinking. You just do. You're not thinking. You remember where all, all the buttons habits, are. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so to like rewire your brain to work with a new screen and new buttons, you know, like really throws people off. Like, yeah. Remember, we even once just. Like reordered where how the sauces showed up on the screen and like everyone was watching the wrong sauces, you know. Yeah. Like you just you don't even you know once you get used to something you don't even think exactly. Um, so for people, I know a lot of times people do struggle with the restaurant three sixty five for whatever reason. It, it, it seems to be almost too much for some people. It's overwhelming that there's some all these extra steps you got to do to really use the full benefit of these platforms. And there's a lot of resistance to doing those extra steps, the data entry, the, what is your advice for that person? That's like, this is not what I signed up. You for. know, this is too much work. It, it, it's complicated. Right. Yeah. And so and that's what they say. It's way too complicated. I think for accounting, it's pretty straightforward, but some of these other tools, right. For the, for the food costing, like there's other programs that, that are out there that are more geared towards food costing that, you know, we've looked at, but with, with restaurant 365, like we can get what we need out of it. And it, and, and we are getting what we need out of it, but it took a lot of time to build and it's like very finicky and you don't really know how it works. Like we would make a change and then the whole thing would blow up and we're like, we didn't even know what, what we did. Right. And you'd have to really like trace back into it. I think we learned that like it's, it was keyed off of like item names. It was mapped off of item names and we changed, you know, I think we like changed something from like uppercase to lowercase and like it ruined yeah. all the mapping and like we had no idea and there's no, you know, they don't really give you a good user manual for so, it. So I'm also curious too, because I know Restaurant 365 has a labor management feature. And I know Seven Shifts is one of the tools you went with, which is yes. that's all they do is labor management. And um, wh- wh- what are your classified, like your, your, what are elements determine 
whether or not you keep an asset, even though it might be a little bit redundant because you already have the labor management seven shifts, but you're not using the labor management. With how do you choose? Like, how do you decide I mean, just, when? Just back to like the toast question. It's always a constant struggle. <laughs> yeah. Like, like I'd love to have just like one partner <laughs> who can do everything, or I don't have to deal with like ten different contracts and ten different companies. But invariably, like they're not, oh, they're never going to be the best at all these things. So the, and so it's that trying to find that balance of like, okay, you can do you bring on a new thing for every little function, or you know. What can you live with and where do you need to go get the be- the best in class tool for? And so, so scheduling is one of those things where, you know, we we had seven shifts. Um, I was actually getting pitched from restaurant three sixty five to hey, we just we just upgraded switch on. We just we yeah. just we just upgraded our scheduler, come use our scheduler, you know, it's already in your you're already paying for it. So I'm like, Yeah, that sounds great. Great, you know, well, you're already paying for it, great. And so we actually did a demo to try to use it and we rolled it out at our at our stores. And it was a disaster. We basically had every every one of our general, every one of our managers being like, I, you know, this sucks. I can't use it. So what is it that Seven Shifts does, in your opinion, better that is worth it to keep that extra expense on for you? Well, team? so, you know, it's the first is the interface, right? It's very user friendly. You know, it's great for communicating with every one of our guests. Like when I send out an email, when I send out a, if I want to send out a communication to our entire company, to every single, every single team member at every single restaurant, I use Seven Shifts. Uh, cause I'm, you know, I'm not going to send out an email to 200 people. I'm not going to send a text out to 200 people. So, you know, seven shifts is, is, is really great interface for communication, but also for kind of enterprise, um, labor management as well. Like one of the things, you know, we have eight restaurants in Manhattan and like some of them are pretty close to each other. We have a store, you know, 10 blocks away from here. If somebody calls out here, you know, we can look to that store too, right? We yeah. don't need to pull just somebody yeah. from this store. We can look to that store to fill a shift. And so they have a great interface of being able to, you know, get you know move people from different locations to really look at you know more of an enterprise level and and you know and cross-reference that person their schedule you know look okay show me all of the people who aren't scheduled who are available you know who work in manhattan and you know they're able to do that really well yeah um so i mean you're answering my quest my questions really well i'm throwing a lot of curveballs at you and really asking you to get into the nitty-gritty because we're, so we're in the weeds confusing. we're I mean, in the weeds but, but you gotta is, be yeah you know? and this is the stuff we don't talk about as owners and operators and i think we need to share this information more assess like more readily so we can make better decisions for our business um i am i, I feel like we gotta give uh our boy zach oats a, a shout out do you do you work with ovation we do work with ovation okay yeah so i the reason why i'm giving zach a shout out is because um you've been on my radar like what actually the first time i i heard about you is when i was in hoboken you just recently opened your hoboken location like a few months ago. yeah we did and i was in hoboken um staying in Hoboken doing interviews in New York city. And I saw this place that there was a line out the door and I'm like, what's this place? And it was stickies. They had just opened and they had like their new wave of like, uh, it was like the first week you guys were open or something like that. And I, that's when I was first like, kind of interesting. And then within like a couple of weeks, like I've, I heard the brand's name a few more times. I was like, I'm there's something going on here. And then I saw that Zach and you guys, did he interview you? Is that what that was? Yeah. We did a panel at a restaurant conference, uh, yeah. last month. Got it. Uh, but anyway, once I saw that Zach knew you, I was like, okay, now I got to just, there's the point of connection right there. I'm just going to make a quick request for intro and here we are. So, um, you know, he's a great connector of people. He's a great really guy. Is. You know, I mean, seems to know everybody. How yeah. do you know? So through his, uh, somebody uh, recommended his, his product on the, on the show. Oh, all right. I cool. really try to let the show dictate who I talk to. Yeah. I'm out here like digging, looking for clues, looking for like leads, whatever people are saying, like word of mouth, you know, like the, the show your work. It's like a math problem. Like how did you not be Well, I talked to this person who talked to that person and they're using this, they're having success. So ovation just kept popping up. It's a great tool. So what is ovation? So, you know, they're, they're a, a text message automated guest feedback tool. 
And, you know, we've used different kind of customer feedback things in the past. And, you know, I just really like their platform. It's super engaging, super easy. And it's a great way to elicit quick feedback from our guests. We're coming full circle here. We started this conversation talking about data. We're going to end it with data. Yeah. So, or data. I'm always afraid I'm saying some, some nerd out there is like, yeah, you're saying it wrong. I think either one's acceptable. (laughs) So this is a huge tool for information, not only contact information, i.e. emails and phone numbers, that's data, but it's also feedback. Like it's what's super valuable for us. Like it gives us real time feedback and, it also allow it's a platform where we can have like real time conversations with the guest, right? Like it's almost it's basically like a text thread for the guest. It's a text thread, and for our our managers, it's an app where they can it's a messaging app where they can message directly with our guests and address things right in the moment. Like somebody has you know somebody's going to get that serve that feedback survey right after they get an order, and if they had an issue with it or if they, you know whatever it is whatever feedback they want to give us, our general manager sees it real time. You know, yeah. they, they can respond to, you know, sometimes they can respond two minutes later being like, Oh, you had an issue. Like we can catch issues in the moment. Yeah. And, you know, and nine times out of 10, when you get a scolding review online, people just need a vent. They just want to, they just feel this need to get it out. And if you can give them that outlet before they have the time to t- type in yelp.com or TripAdvisor or whatever, um, Facebook, wherever they want to blow you up and talk about how horrible, if you just give them that outlet and give them a chance to vent directly to you and then offer a solution instantly in a closed forum where it's not public, you can take care of it personally. I mean, people just want to be heard, right? So like, I mean, you know, and people are serious about their food, right? And it's like, you know, what to me might seem maybe, you know, a mundane detail to an order. Like you gave me this sauce instead of that sauce. I'm like, well, you know, you got a bunch of different sauces messing up one of them probably not going to ruin your meal like still going to i know it's still good uh you know people take it really seriously they take it personally you know if any little detail is wrong and and i and i get that right we have to be we have to strive for perfection even if even if we're not going to get get there we have to that's what we have to strive for and so just being able to get catch, catch that in the moment and and really just show them that we're listening and that we care and that it matters to us that we didn't do something right for you is super powerful tool. So aside from being able to build your list, both email and text message, SMS list, uh, and being able to give this outlet for feedback and to be, to be able to hear your, your guests, what is the most enlightening thing that you've unearthed or gotten out of ovation as far as like something like, like just the other data, the, the feedback that you get? I mean, the big thing is you can just, you start to see trends at different restaurants, right? Like I never try to overreact to any one, single point of feedback, right? Like, you know, you never know what happened. You know, maybe that person could be having a bad day or one of the people on our team could be having a bad day, right? But but when you see patterns, then it's like, then you know you need to address it. And when you see a pattern, if you see a pattern emerge across multiple stores, then maybe it's something in the whole company we need to address. You know, maybe we just haven't trained on this thing, right? We've caught things. Hey, we need to be training on this thing. It doesn't exist. So, okay, we got to roll out this new training program uh, for whatever, you know, issue that comes up. Or sometimes you'll see just something isolated to a specific restaurant. I'm like, okay, now I'm seeing a pattern at this store. We have to go address it with that general manager or with this team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We've covered a lot today. Maybe. Yeah. All, um, all over the board. <laughs> yeah, all over the board. Anything we <laughs> you're going to bring it back, right? Anything we did not <laughs> I mean, talk about that, like, you're like, I really feel like I could speak uniquely to this. Now's the time to get it out. You know, look, I think just. It's been, you know, I've been at this for 10 years and, you know, entrepreneurship is, you know, really, it's the most like 
fulfilling and satisfying thing. And it's also the most challenging <laughs> and stressful thing. And, you know, things go in waves, right? You know, you might have, you know, okay, at this point, oh, I'm feeling really good. Everything's going in the right direction. And then it's like, you know, yeah. okay, now this problem came up and now another one confounded you that. Tell and me another that this one is an emotional that, roller coaster? You know, and it's like, you know, definitely like when it rains, it pours. Yeah. And, you know, look, we have a business that was built in New York City and even just dealing with, you know, pandemics was a huge challenge, yeah. right? Like life as we know it has changed, is different in the city that we live in, um, maybe forever, right? Um, and so, you know, we've kind of, as we've been really, you know, ad- adapting to, you know, it just, everything's constantly changing. Right. And, and you always, you can never rest on like, oh, just cause you did something good in the past doesn't mean that it's, you know, doesn't mean that you're going to continue, you know, you have to continue to yeah. foster and nurture all of these things. As soon as you get fat, dumb and happy, that's when things start to go south. And so, <laughs> you know, it's just like, yeah, it's been, you know, it's been an incredible learning experience. Um, it's you know, not for the faint of heart, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people want to be entrepreneurs or, you know, I feel like from the outside, it's an easy thing to kind of like, you know, seems glamorous. Um, like, trust me, anytime, you know, I'm anyone who I meet like, Oh, like they think what I do is the coolest thing and it is really fucking cool. So I'm not, yeah, it has its moments and I'm not going to (laughs) downplay that at all, you know, but it, you know, it's hard and it's an emotional roller coaster and, you know, and like 10 years in, it's not like it, you know, it doesn't get easy. So let me ask you this. The mission statement is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. How have you personally transformed over the past 10 years? Who are you today versus the man you were when you got started in this industry? You know, I mean, I've grown in so many different ways. Um, just my, I mean, I've learned so many specific skills and so many things that I never thought I would know, but I've also just learned so much about people and management and relationships and, you know, and, and what it takes to build a team and motivate a team and the dynamics and, you know, scaling a business, like all the challenges of as you get further along, further away from the core of what you do, like how to deal with that. And, you know, I think I've done that well. I've made mistakes. I've learned from that. I've tried to, you know, it's like, you know, if, you know, you'll have moments of like, I'm too far away from it. Then you go and then you, then you really get hands on and like, okay, now I'm too close to it and I'm micromanaging. So now I got, you know, it's really finding that right balance and, you know, and, and even just, you know, in my, in my uh, personal life too, just like I could, you know, there'd be nights where it's like, if I have no, there's something I'm working on or an issue I'm stewing on. It's like, you know, I could stay up all, you know, I could stay up all night in bed, you know, thinking through an issue and, you know, really trying to find like that's good. Sometimes you just have to do that, and there's no running away. You can't run away from the from the these ob- problems. The, obst- yeah. the, ob- the obstacle is the way. Yeah, right? you just yeah. got to tackle. You got to just go through it. Yep. But you know, you also have to try to figure out a way to find a good balance and be able to shut some of that yeah. stuff off too. So, on that note of inspire and power, transform the industry. How do you think the industry needs to transform? Where are we now? Where do you think we could be? How could we do this better? What needs to change? You know, I think we're in a unique time right now where you know clearly. Uh, we're, we're in a market where a lot of people have left the hospitality industry, right? Like every single restaurant is struggling for people, struggling for talent. And I think we need it. I think it's, it's, it sucks real bad right now, but I think it's going to do a lot of good in the long run. I mean, look at the end of the day, right? We, you know, there, there's a reason why people have been attracted to this industry in the past. And, you know, we need to really come back to that and, like we need to be able to create environments in our restaurants and in, in, in our companies that really want to bring people back into this world. Cause it's all, you know, when it's right, it's right. And when it's fun 
And not only, you know, is it hard work, but it's, it's satisfying and fulfilling work. Like when you make a customer happy, like there's nothing better than hearing, there's nothing better than somebody coming up to me and telling me how much they love my food, you, right? There's nothing better than that. Do you that. think there's something that's recently changed about the industry that's driven people out? You know, that's an, uh, I think it's probably a, cu- a number of different dynamics, right? Like, like, look, right, working in a restaurant, it's just hard work, right? Yeah. It's hard and... You know, I think probably there may be that I would it seems like probably people found other other ventures and opportunities to maybe make similar amount of money and work not as hard. But, you know, I feel like some of that can be fool's gold. Too. Talk about the gig economy. Yeah. yeah. And the yeah. gig economy. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, the grass looks greener and people jumping on some of those things and wanting to have their flexibility, um, you know. Yeah. But, you know, again, I think there's challenges in a lot of that stuff, too. Yeah. And, you know, my, my hope is that you know, just as an industry, you know, we can really, and this is what I'm striving to do here is really just create an environment where, you know, people can have, you know, really enriching experiences where they learn and they grow and, and they build great relationships with their teams and they do something that's satisfying and also have an opportunity to, to grow and, and take on more responsibility and take on, you know, have opportunities for career growth and, and to keep yeah. on learning. Well, I mean, I, th- I think there is a moment of, of, reality right now where the industry's standards and expectations are going up on professionalism at the same time you're working in more of a corporate uh rigid environment because of you know hr and professionalism and all these things but the we're not really being compensated any differently so the some of the benefits of working in the restaurant industry where it was a little more loose you could get away with saying things or maybe telling a dirty joke and not having to worry you can't really get away with that stuff anymore sometimes i wonder if I think we could be better in, at making a more inclusive and safe environment. But at the same time, I feel like what was so appealing about this industry, the, the misfits, the, you know, the people that couldn't really get away with being themselves in a corporate environment can't really get away with being themselves in this industry anymore either. Yeah. I mean that, that old school kind of restaurant. <laughs> I'm saying this because it's a thing of the past, you know? Yeah. I mean, so I wonder sometimes if like the, that was a benefit for some people knowing that they could just be their, their true selves, not worry about. Yeah. It's definitely a benefit for some and probably a detriment for exactly. others. Exactly. Um, who knows? I don't have the answers. I'm, I'm stabbing you know, look, in the dark that, right now. That, 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 that's a tricky one, right? Cause I didn't the, want you, know, you to say it because you're, I mean, I can, as the, I can take one for the team as far as, you know, I don't we, know if that went crossed your mind. I mean, we want to create environments where our team, our, our team members are comfortable, right? Yeah. Like, like above and beyond, if you're not comfortable, you're not going to be happy. You're not going to do your best job and you're not going to want to be there for very long. Yeah. So, you know, that's first and foremost, but you know, I totally get your point. I think, you know, whether it's restaurants or just more broadly, you know, there's definitely areas where we've probably gone too far <laughs> trying to be, you know, perfect and politically correct. And, you know, I'm not going to try to get into that rabbit yeah, hole right now. Exactly. One more quick break to thank our sponsors <laughs> and we're going to bust out a very quick speed round. This episode is brought to you by MyRestaurantCFO.com. MyRestaurantCFO exists because their experience over the years has revealed all the frustrations, bottlenecks, and pain points restaurant owners experience when managing their establishment. Beyond their understanding of all the ills that plague the restaurant industry, MyRestaurantCFO realizes that restaurants are like snowflakes. No two are the same, so they avoid the cookie-cutter approach. MyRestaurantCFO. Foe's goal is to be 
your partner in success by learning all there is to know about your business and putting together a custom solution that gives you only what you need and to be the guiding hand that helps you achieve your goals. My Restaurant CFO partners with restaurants to simplify financial management by offering full service bookkeeping, payroll, and CFO services. Spending more on a CFO will actually improve your profitability and help you achieve a better work-life balance. With my restaurant CFO, you'll be able to focus your time on positive customer experiences, always know how your money is working for you and where you can save, no learning curve, and no more late nights trying to make sense of your financial ecosystem. When you partner with my restaurant CFO, they'll provide accurate weekly and monthly reporting, trend analysis for easy forecasting, improved control over vendor costs, complete financial analysis, and recommendations sourced from over 30 years of operational experience and 10 years of consulting experience on how to save more money. If you're ready to start making the right decisions for the growth of your business, your call to action is to go to myrestaurantcfo.com slash unstoppable. And when you use that link, you will get a one hour consulting session with the founder and partner of myrestaurantcfo.com, Miguel Miranda, also a past guest on the show. That's myrestaurantcfo.com slash unstoppable. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And effective labor management is more important than ever to ensure profitability and restaurant success, especially with this labor shortage. You need to rely and trust technology more than ever before. And dialing in your labor management is one of the most positive, dramatic impacts you can make on your business's bottom line. And when it comes to labor management, Seven Shifts is one of the most, if not the most, organically recommended labor management platforms on the show. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communication, tasks, tips, and more all from one place. Best of all, Seven Shifts integrates with the POS and payroll system you're already using, like Toast, to make smart operating decisions and turn labor management into a competitive advantage for your business. Restaurant Unstoppable members get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven S H I F T S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. We're back. And the first question I have for you is what is your it's factor? A habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success. Determination. What is your biggest weakness? How many? <laughs> for a whole sentence there. One, the first one. Um, trying to do too many things. When you're building your team, what questions do you ask? What are you looking for? I think we were to answer this question earlier. I mean, it depends on, it depends on what role, but... I'm looking for an, an understanding of what it's going to take to do the job and a will and determination of doing it. What is your biggest challenge today? People. How are you overcoming it? Hiring better and training better. Uh, share one code of conduct or behavior, a core value you teach your team. Communication. Is, 
the the is the really the backbone of every relationship and sets us up for success. I love that. I'm trying to be better about that myself. Uh, what is one uncommon standard of service? Something that's common within the four walls of your restaurants, but not common throughout the industry to go above and beyond. You call it hospitality. So, you know, we want to make sure that every guest loves their food and also understands what they're getting. So, you know, we really try to walk every guest through their experience and, and make sure that they're getting the right thing for them. Cause just cause we're serving chicken fingers and sauces, there's a lot of different ways that we serve them. And a lot of people come up who've never been to our restaurant and can be overwhelmed. So we really try to like give them that welcoming experience of like, we're going to walk you through our entire menu. Even if it takes a little bit longer, we're going to make sure that you get the right thing. Got it. And what's one book you recommend? You know, there's a lot of different types. Yeah. You know, well, I'll, I'll keep this simple. If you're in the restaurant industry, just read Kitchen Confidential. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, what is one thing you feel restaurant tours don't do often enough or well enough? Empower their team. Name one service you've hired. So not a technology, but a service that does something that you could never do as, as well on your own. Or maybe it's a technology that is a service. Well, we have a bookkeeping service that, you know, trying to do that on my own seems like a big headache. Give them a shout out. Yeah, we'll give a shout out to uh, Dine Technology. What is it? One more time. Dine Technology. Dine Scott technology. Gilman. Thanks, Got buddy. It. Yeah. Uh, what is one technology? So we talked about a lot of technology today, but if you could just reinforce one of those technologies that you think is the best investment you've made, which one is it? Really Toast, because we kind of built our whole tech ecosystem off of that. Got it. Uh, and Toast is an affiliate, guys. If you want to support this podcast or any of the tools or services that were recommended today, go to the show notes. Um, it's going to be restaurantunstoppable.com slash 900 and something. Just look at the episode number slash whatever that episode number is. Use our links, support this podcast. It helps so much. Uh, and this is the last question. Are you ready for it? If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work and your restaurants would be lost with your departure with the exception of three pieces of wisdom you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy. What are those three pieces of wisdom? I read that fast. Yeah, I got it. Okay. All right. Um, <laughs> Empower your people, make delicious food, have fun doing it. Who do you respect and admire? And if there were a guest on the show, you would absolutely tune in to listen to that episode. You know, it's... Uh, your restaurant hero. My restaurant hero. You know, I, I don't really have a single... It's, it's not necessarily a person, um, but more so a restaurant. I love what In-N-Out does. Okay. Um, you know, I think they've managed to build this incredible culture and vibe and appeal around their, and really like cult around their brand and what they offer. Is so simple. I mean, yeah. the food is good, but you know, it's very basic and simple, yeah. but it's just the execution and the service is just, you know, so, you know, unbelievable and best in class. Look out in and out. I'm coming after you. I'd love to get you on the show. And they're disciplined too. You know, yeah. like we'd love to have them in New York. I'm sure they crush here, but you know, they're, they're West coasters. Yep. It's their vibe, dude. <laughs> exactly. Um, dude, this has been great. If we, if we really enjoyed your episode and maybe we want to connect with you, maybe we want to come work for you. What's the best way to connect? So, you know, go to our website and, uh, to check out our restaurant at stickies.com. S T I C K Y S.com. Feel free to reach out to me. My, I'm at J-O-N at stickies.com. John at stickies.com. Shoot me an email. would love to hear from you. John, thank you so much, my dude. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. Yeah, man. Thank you so much for having me. This is a blast. The pleasure is mine. Cheers. 
There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Jonathan Sherman, for coming on and just being such an inspiration. Whenever anybody I have on the show has zero background in the restaurant industry and uh, they, they get started and they just crush it. I mean, part of our mission is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. If that's not inspiring, I don't know what it is. Anybody can do this. And I think John is just living proof uh, that no matter where you're from, what what walk of life, what experience you have, if you have a passion and a desire, you can make this happen. So awesome stuff today. Uh, So as you're listening to this, I am headed out to Bend Oregon, and I'm going to be trying to get a couple interviews out there. It's kind of a spontaneous trip. I'm helping a couple friends move back east from out west, and uh, figuring I might as well head out there and try to get a couple interviews. So, uh, if you know of anybody in Bend, Oregon, who needs to be made an example of, please let me know. Maybe we can get them on the show while I'm out there. Or if you just want to connect, I'm going to have a rental car. I'd love to meet some folks. If you want to connect and you're in Oregon, hit me up. Give me something to do. And then uh, the following week, right off the heels of that, I'm headed to Milwaukee. And I've got a couple interviews lined up already there. I'm going to be connecting with Fred Langley from Restaurant Systems Pro. He invited me out to be a part of a mastermind. So uh, I'm really excited about that. And um, that's what's going on at Restaurant Unstoppable. If you guys are finding value in this podcast and you want to support the podcast, there's a few ways you can do it. You can head over to YouTube, youtube.com slash Restaurant Unstoppable. We are really putting a lot of energy into building up our YouTube presence. And I wanted to have every on-site interview, you know, have a video component and maybe do some behind the scenes and who knows, but we need some support there. You can support our sponsors. You can use our affiliate links. That's whenever any tool or service is recommended on the show. Just go to the show notes, use our links, and you can also share this podcast with everybody and anybody, you know, aspiring to be great in the industry. And before I say goodbye, I just want to say a special thanks to Jared Parisi over at Sumadre podcast for helping me with the editing and copywriting and special thanks to Jihad for, uh, you know, being on the road with me and helping me capture these interviews. Uh, thank you guys so much. That's it until next time. Peace out.